Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we morosely read the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Novelizations are exercises in selective maximalism, recognizing that certain visual spectacles cannot be replicated on the page. These books opt to showcase interiority in moments when their source film is reveling in the exterior. Conversely, they take a movie's small details, such as character backstory and minor jokes, and expand on them immensely. A scene which contained one quip on screen may blossom on the page into eight, while a moment of doubt flickering across a character's face will iterate into a full page of tender backstory. Novelizations, through their jokey embellishments, help to build out a world of humans and aliens living in concert, making that world feel even lusher and more layered. We are your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. I'm Ethan Warren. And I'm Hannah Blackman. Men in Black is a 1995 science fiction comedy. It's 1997, right? Well, you wrote it, and I trust I you. I made a mistake. Let me do it again. Well, now I don't know what to believe. You're killing it. <laughs> I think 97 seems right. Okay, it's got to be on the book somewhere, doesn't it? That, that's correct. Okay. They're not even next to each other on the keyboard. I don't know how I messed that up. <laughs> it's okay. I forgive you, but also you embarrassed me in front of our guest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You trying to say that this came out before Independence Day? I mean, that's insane. Cut all of that out. Mm. You better. <laughs> okay. Men in Black is a 1997 science fiction comedy. If I cut it all out, you got to come in with more verb. <laughs> Fine. Because it's, it's got to seem like we didn't talk. <laughs> okay. 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 Let me get back into the mindset. Let me neuralize myself back four minutes so I can mm-hmm, be as if mm-hmm. I never fucked up because of your incompetence. F- fantastic. <laughs> okay. Oh, we should have done this whole episode in sunglasses. Patrick has the right idea. Also, wearing, <laughs> wearing two prescription glasses over each other makes everything look really weird. I can only imagine. <laughs> this is not good for me. <laughs> Men in Black is a 1997 science fiction comedy directed by Barry Sonnenfeld. It follows James Edward III, an NYPD officer who is contacted by a mysterious man after successfully apprehending an unusually athletic criminal. The criminal, it turns out, is an extraterrestrial, and the mysterious man who goes by simply the letter K belongs to a secret organization tasked with maintaining many, many tentative human-alien relationships. Was that good? Are you happy? No, it was awesome. Okay, great. It I'll was like, that was that, that, that was, that was, that was, that was a, a gymnast level <laughs> uh, speech. Loved it. Okay. Joining as a new member of these men in black, James, now simply known as Jay, sets off with Kay to investigate the unauthorized landing of an intergalactic war profiteer. Will Jay and Kay be able to stop this arms dealer slash he's just a bug who likes to eat things before Mm. he sows the seed of intergalactic war? Or will the interloping alien destroy Earth, thus ensuring his personal wealth as well as the generational wealth that will sustain his thousands upon thousands of children? I think they just feed on corpses. So war is good for them. Oh, is is that what's going on? That's what I think is happening. We'll talk about it. Wow, I am stupid. I am stupid. I thought he was like, I sell guns, guns make me money. 
I give money to food people and then I feed that to my children. He's a bug who and bugs eat dead things. The novelization of Men in Black was written by Steve Perry based on the screenplay by Ed Solomon, and it was published by Bantam Books in 1997. Baby. Uh, (laughs) Oh no, did you just get possessed by a bug? I did. I did. I just got bugged. (laughs) Our guest today, a video essayist on many platforms, including YouTube, Nebula, probably some illegal ones that they're not supposed to be on. Patrick Willems, how are you doing today? I'm doing so well. Thank you so much for having me back again. Of course, it's always a pleasure to have you. What is your relationship, Patrick, to the film that we are discussing today that goes by the name of Men in Black? Well, I should probably mention that I did pick this one. You I did. picked this novelization uh, because I do actually have a relationship with this novelization. Go Please. On. Um, I mean, don't get too excited. It's not that exciting. Um, <laughs> so I, unlike the three of you, am not a novelization enthusiast. Uh, my history with novelizations, really until I was first a guest on this podcast, is, uh, is very short. Uh, and it goes back to the summer of 1997. Terrific summer. Uh, well, okay. I while I, I spent most of that summer on vacation in Ireland, uh, as I did most summers back then. Uh, that's where my mom is from, so visiting like her family, and uh, and I would spend. You know, I, look, it rains a lot in Ireland. You, you spend a lot of time sitting around inside, and uh, and so I was just like reading a ton of books, and I read all the books that I brought with me, and I wanted more books, and so I went to the bookstore in the town of Lahinch, County Clare, and I. Uh, and that summer, my two favorite movies that I had seen before I went to Ireland were Batman and Robin and mm-hmm. Men in Black. And I didn't know novelizations existed. And then I'm looking around the bookstore and I'm like, holy shit, they have books based on my new favorite movies that are right here? And so I bought both those books. I read both those novelizations. I... Uh, And the thing that I remember vividly to this day, the only thing I really remembered about this book is that it gave, because this book, not to jump ahead, uh, sticks pretty closely to the script of the movie. But I remember being amazed when it, it, uh, like for like one page, delves a little bit into Laurel Weaver's childhood and describes (laughs) like, like her brother, like destroying her Barbies. And I'm like, oh my God, there's stuff that's not in the movie that's here in this book. Uh, Anyway, then two years later, I read one more novelization, Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace. And then I never read one again until the first time I was on this podcast. And so when you asked me to, uh, to pick one, I immediately thought back to like the first novelization that had made a big impression on like eight year old me and um and it was this and my relationship with the movie is that uh i thought it was the coolest movie in the world when i was eight years old and to this day i still pretty much think it is i watched it again last night uh perfect masterpiece i love it so much ethan you uh before we got on here expressed worry that uh hannah was going to trash men in black uh two questions what's your relationship to the movie and also why did you think that would happen I just, I came into this knowing that Patrick loves this movie and knowing that Andrew loves this movie. 
And I just really was hoping that it was all four of us. And so I was just eager to confirm right away that that this was a situation where all four of us could say, this is one of the best movies that's ever been made in history. I mean, that's, you know, maybe we can't. In your brain, you're like, you know, Hannah doesn't always like good things. She probably hates this one. What was that about? See, the lesson I'm getting here is that you don't follow Hannah on Letterboxd. <laughs> do I not? Log well, that's, movie. No, do you not? that's a good point. I guess I don't. That's okay. I, well, we'll rectify that situation, certainly. But Sorry, <clears throat> I, I, I don't mean to embarrass you on your own show. No, it's okay either my, because I don't follow show. you either. And so <laughs> That's a good point. I'm fixing it now. I'm fixing it now. I walk through the world doing what I think of as the Hannah test, where I look at things and I think, would Hannah like that or not? And it keeps my family very distracted when I'm walking around. It's a radical act of empathy to look at anything and go, (laughs) how would I feel about this if I was a hater? (laughs) Excuse him, Ma. If there's one thing I am not, it's a hater, except for the things that I hate. Ethan, do you do this with, with, do you look at everything and wonder how everyone will respond to it or just Hannah? Just Hannah. Okay, look, the last time I was on this show, we talked about Southland Tales, and Hannah really didn't like it. That's true. I am a hater of Southland Tales. And so, you, you know, that is... I just, I'm just making sure that, that we're on the same page on this one, and I was pretty sure we would be, but I just... Ethan, you just don't know me very sure. well yet, and as you get mm-hmm. to know me, this this will become... It will become very clear the things that I like and the things that I won't <laughs> like. You know, like, you'll figure it out. There's a huge difference... Between wondering whether people, random people, will like Men in Black, and wondering they will whether they will like a movie that starts with Chapter Four, The Armageddon Tree, or whatever. However, that there's two movie perfect starts. movies. There's two perfect movies, and but so one of them is a little more divisive than the other. Yeah, yeah. One of those perfect movies is bad, and one of them is uh, good. All I'm saying is Southland Tales has. Uh, you know, there's a a group of people who really like that movie, but it, I wouldn't say it's a movie that was widely embraced <laughs> by uh, the public at large. Mm-hmm. Not true. Anyway, my relationship <laughs> with Men in Black is that I th- I'm pretty sure this is the first PG-13 movie I ever saw in theaters. Mm-hmm. I'm looking back on it. It was the summer before sixth grade. I had just been at my grandmother's second wedding, and I went with... My dad and my dad's new stepbrother. Wait, can you just tell the story of this? Yeah, what's going on with that? My, I want to hear all got, about this. She fell in love again. What about it? My grandmother fell in love when I was in like fifth grade and she married him. And I went and saw Men in Black with my new step-grandfather's son being my dad's new stepbrother. How'd they meet? At a, at a poetry uh, retreat. They're living the they're living the Santa Fe lifestyle. And that's my story. That's one of those things where you know when you go to a poetry retreat, you go, there's a larger chance than usual I marry someone from this event. I, I was once at a at a concert, uh I, I, I was telling my girlfriend this story recently. I was once at a, a concert for the band Zox, Rhode Island uh <gasps> violin. I love the band, band Zox. Yeah, I wish they still existed. A, a little after they broke up, they had a reunion show. This is maybe 2014. And I went to it, and I was talking to this like, group of women in the front row. And this, this one woman said to me, she went, you know, I was just saying before I got here, there's a really high chance that I will meet my husband at this concert. 
And then she sort of like realized what she had just said and she just <laughs> walked away. It wasn't you, Andrew. It wasn't me, but she said it and she, I didn't say anything. I didn't go, I bet it's me. She just went, I bet I'll meet the love of my life tonight. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Ethan, you like Men in Black? Well, my, my grandmother was living out the plot of a Nancy Myers movie, I guess, now that I think about it, when she went to a poetry retreat and fell in love. And she married the gentleman, and I went with the gentleman's son and brother and my daddy to see Men in Black. And it was a profoundly life-changing experience because this movie is perfect. And every day ever since that day, I've gotten to live in a world where I've seen the movie Men in Black. And I regularly re-up that experience and feel all the happier for it. I personally had basically not seen the film. I did watch it at one point, and I had almost no memory of it. You didn't see it in it. theaters? No, I didn't see it in theaters. Andrew would have been uh, a baby. I would have been five, maybe. So? I mean, I think my sister was five. She came along with me, and she my, saw it. My parents were extremely protective of content that I watched, to the point where it felt <clears throat> insulting, where... They would not let me watch Ferris Bueller because they thought that I would just adopt his entire ethos. That was the actual reasoning. He would, I guess. They really were like, if we show that to him, he will stop going to school. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I basically got to see almost, like, nothing PG-13. I've said before that the only PG-13 that I was ever allowed to watch was disaster stuff, and I hated disaster movies. So I was uh, essentially just had to abstain. but yeah, I, I rewatched Men in Black the other day, having almost no memory of it, absolutely loved it, and then went on and did two and three immediately, which was interesting. But not four? You'd had enough? The letterbox reviews on four are so, never watch this movie, never ever watch this movie. It has Rafe Spall in it. Yeah, I skipped International, I must admit. I went Same. to see it in the movie theater, and it has Rafe oh, Spall no. in it. I mean, I like And Ray he Small. has a really good chemistry with Chris Hemsworth that the movie doesn't really capitalize on, but it's there. <laughs> Rafe Spall has chemistry with everyone. He does. So, Patrick, when you read this book as a child, was there yeah. any sort of critical mind to it? I mean, I know that you said that you enjoyed the passage about the Barbies, but were you in the stage of childhood where everything was just sort of um, rapturous consumption, or did you feel any sort of way about this book? Do we not get to know Hannah's relationship to this movie? No, we don't. Okay. (laughs) She's keeping it for herself. Thanks for thinking of me. Patrick, answer the question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let me, wait. Let's have Hannah go. Well, actually, something that's just coming to me out of the blue, totally unrelated, is Hannah, do you have a relationship to Men in Black? (laughs) And if so, what is it? Um, I've seen it, and I like it. I've seen it a few times in my life. I don't think I saw it in theaters. I don't remember seeing two in theaters, but there's a chance I did. I do remember seeing three in theaters. And as mentioned, I did see four at the Brooklyn Alamo Draft House. Good wow. movie. And in black one, big fan. Big fan. It Every time good. we all decide to remember that Vincent D'Onofrio is in it, it's pleasant to me. Giving, I would argue... Maybe the greatest performance in cinema history. Yes. No. What's going... But, I mean, like, the shape of his head is wrong. He just, he just acts so well. 
Yes, no, his that's not his face. Like what they've did done they do something to him? to him. He's a really good actor, and he can just do it. That's no way. Yeah, yeah, he's he's really talented. Like, yes, he's really <laughs> talented, but like, when he pulls his skin back, that's really him doing. I that. hate you. <laughs> I don't believe in jokes, and I don't believe in bits. It's always fun uh, to make it, Hannah do two in, two episodes in a day. It always goes. I well. become really grumpy. Andrew, to answer your question, uh, in the opening credits, a really key credit there is Alien Makeup Effects by Rick Baker. No, so... Who I, is, is going uh, ham on this movie. I understand yeah. that there are some effects in this movie. I get that. I just... The thing that bothers me about D'Onofrio is he has a face, and it is a shape. And I just don't understand what they have done to that in order to make it so that he has, like, the same eyes. I'm not talking about when he pulls his skin back. I just mean when he's walking around and talking, he has, like, a completely different head shape, and his features are in different conversation with each other. It's insane. Yeah, it's just, like, straight up one of the best movie makeup jobs ever. Because, like, like, because you see regular Vincent D'Onofrio, like, walk out of the house, and then once... The bug puts on his skin, puts on the Egger suit. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it basically looks like a different person. But it, but you don't you can't see any seams of like oh right they attached the makeup here. It's just it yeah you're right he basically looks like a different person. It's wild. It's like a remixed man. And then he looks like a different person. He looks like a different person every time he appears on screen from then on, which is what is so beautiful about the Rick Baker is work. This, is one second, Hannah, did you just send the oral history of his performance? Yeah, I figured, you know, we could all read that in our free time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just As soon as I saw that, that that you'd sent a link, I was like, is it that article? Because that's a good article. I don't do research in advance. I do research in the middle of the episode, so. <laughs> uh, actually, here's a question. Speaking of him, and this might seem like a weird question, but I have met like one or two other people in my life who also had this. Um did anyone else have the thing where after seeing this movie as a child, okay, Andrew, you did not have this, um, but where if you hear uh, the word sugar, <laughs> you just immediately say uh, in water or, or uh, sugar water? I mean, I, I just mentally just say the word back in my head. Sugar. I, I, I just, those are the, both of their deliveries because both of their performances are so good. Are those imprinted on my brain almost more than anything else in this movie? The thing I remembered from watching this maybe four years ago, probably while doing work or something, I can't imagine why I didn't remember such a good movie. I must have been distracted. Uh, the thing that has that stuck with me was Will Smith looking at a photo of D'Onofrio and calling him ugly. So mean, because D'Onofrio, as we all know, very cute. He's really cute, especially this era of D'Onofrio. Every era in its own way. I'm never more confused in life than when I'm watching Strange Days, and I'm like, I hate everything this guy's doing, but hoo-hoo-hoo. good. <laughs> well, there's no ugly people in Hollywood, as you know, so it's very hard to cast an ugly person in a movie. It's a struggle that they have mm-hmm. out there. Mm-hmm. So they were like, Absolutely. what's the ugliest we can do? Super cutie D'Onofrio. Patrick, revisiting this book. Patrick, how did you feel cracking this book open, seeing this epigraph? And diving back into Men in Black. Uh, it really... So I, I should say, 
while I read this book when I was like eight years old, I I don't think I ever reread it. I just read it. I mean, it was basically a way where like, you know, I'm a kid. I'm not just going to the movies on my own. And uh, and I, while I did own Men in Black on VHS, this was kind of a way to like relive the movie when I couldn't just watch it again uh, easily. And so I only I only read it once as a kid. And cracking this open, uh, there were just like lines in the in the, the text that did just kind of like well I I, I kind of you know I flash back to being like oh yes I do recall that or I like there were parts in it that really did uh you know kind of like jog something in my memory but I will say the other two episodes I've been on were both novelizations that I would say greatly improved upon not great movies that mm. like really did a lot of heavy lifting. For the listeners, like, Revenge of the Sith and of course 47 Ronin, both worth checking out. Yes, uh, both good books, uh, but, but books that did a lot of heavy lifting, providing material that is not in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I was curious to see what it would be like revisiting Men in Black, because uh, I'm like, this is like a perfect movie. Like... I mean, I I remembered the Barbie passage, which is a page, but but I, I was like, how much? You know, they don't need to make up for much the way the others did, and I was kind of surprised how like direct an adaptation mm-hmm. this is, like scene for scene, almost line for line. And one big thing that jumped out to me is a lot of the dialogue in the book is the dialogue in the movie that. Ed Solomon wrote in the script. And the biggest difference I found was um, it didn't have a lot of funny lines that Will Smith has in the movie. And so that to me was a clue like these must have been like things he improved on set. Definitely. Because like everything Tommy Lee Jones says in the movie is pretty much in the book. But so much of so many of Will Smith's best lines, not in the book at all. That's the special Will touch. I would say also that um, Kay is a lot more effusive in the book. He has more dialogue. And it seems clear that on set they were like, less, less, Tommy, less. It's great when you're just like monosyllabic, essentially. Uh, And we get all of those Edgar point of view chapters and elements, which are a big addition. That's my take on the book. I think the book really, this guy just wanted to write from the perspective of the alien. And he just fit it in wherever he could. <laughs> Not Edgar. Yes. Curb. 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 Yeah, and they never give him the name Curb in the movie, right? And Curb does not... I mean, he has a little bit of dialogue at the very beginning when he says, your proposal is acceptable or whatever, but he does not speak again uh, as he does voluminously in the climax of this book. Yeah, even in the climax of the movie, once he takes the Edgar suit off... He never speaks again. Nope. He's not talking. I tell you, I always remember his bug form to be like a millipede, and that is not Mm -hmm. true. (laughs) I don't know where I got that. Yeah, I would get that checked. It sounds concerning. (laughs) You still remember it that way? Well, now I kind of know better because I watched it recently. But I think Mm -hmm. if you asked me six months from now, I'd be like, yeah, he's like a tall millipede guy. (laughs) (laughs) The uh, the epigraph for the listener. It's uh, uh, what anyone know what this is from? We just get the. The Sir Walter Raleigh. We don't get the... Let's find out. Yeah. You read it. It is, of course, I wish I loved the human race. I wish I loved its silly face. I wish I liked the way it walks. 
I wish I liked the way it talks. And when I'm introduced to one, I wish I thought, what jolly fun. It's fun that this is here, but I don't understand why. Having read the entire book now. It is, that is the entirety of the poem, which is entitled, Wishes of an Elderly Man Wished at a Garden Party, June 1914. Who's doing the wishing? An elderly man. No, I just mean in its in its <laughs> applicability to the text. Is uh, is it curb? I think it is the concept that humanity is silly. We are a silly race among the universe. And a, from the outside, we're just silly little things. Okay. How fun and silly we are. And this is such a fun and silly story and a fun and silly book about fun and silly people. It just kind of puts you in the right place to have a jolly fun time, mm-hmm. I would say. I like it. I like it. I think it points back to Kay's line later on, like the most profound whole line in this movie. Uh, The the bit about, you know, a person is smart and people are dumb, panicky animals. I think it's it's just pointing in that direction. Can I really quickly here point out the strangest thing to me in the whole book? Yeah, go. A thing I I had fully forgotten about. I want to get this on the record now. Um, One thing actually in the book that I did not like that I thought it was uh, an addition. Uh, actually, actually, uh, yeah, that something that's not in the movie. For all I know, they it was in the script and they shot it in, for the film and then deleted it. But uh, whatever, I think the movie is better without this. Um, there are two instances of um, there's more death in the book. Uh, that the first one is when Kay first meets Jay and they go to meet. Uh, Jeebs to check out his you know illegal arms dealing mm-hmm. and Kay puts on like a security system on the car oh, yeah. and they tell you that because this is dangerous New York City uh, multiple carjackers show up to try to steal the car <laughs> and it vaporizes them and it's weird to me that I'm like look I know plenty of aliens die in this but it's weird to me that Kay is just killing like common criminals in New York, and then, like, smiling about it. I'm like, this is, uh, this is suddenly, like, veering off tonally into a different direction that doesn't feel like the men in black that I know and love. Uh, this is, like, a bit too sadistic. Um, the other part is, like, late in the movie, when, you know, the, the Archelians are, like, threatening to blow up the Earth and all of that. And this, it's in the movie as well. They do fire a warning shot at at the earth but in the book they then go on to tell you that the warning shot has like caused massive tidal waves and killed like a hundred thousand (laughs) people in various cities and i'm just like i don't need that like i was like i don't remember that from the movie i don't remember that suddenly it makes this all much heavier and them being like as fun and jokey while like you know genocide is basically happening (laughs) Uh, I just think it it doesn't fit in there well, and I kind of prefer just thinking like, oh, whatever. They shot like a polar ice cap in like a, an, a with a place with no one around, just to show that they can like blast a laser. I don't need to know that because oh, it, it also raises too many questions. Where it's like, okay, I know the Men in Black have neuralizers, and you know can explain what what happened when like I don't know a random explosion happens, but they can't. They can't neuralize people when, like, there's just, like, mass deaths and, like, entire mm-hmm, cities mm-hmm. being wiped out. You never That's... had a father. 
Beep. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I just like didn't love that. They're 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 both so short, but felt really unnecessary. Yeah. I agree. However, mm-hmm. the thing about uh, novelizations sometimes is I agree that they are that they'll iterate in a bad way, and I think everything you just said is so well argued. It's against the tone of the movie, but. It is also indicative of the attitude that Perry's bringing to sort of the whole book. He's taking risks in a lot of different directions. He's adding in extra jokes. He's adding in the the backstory about the Barbies and everything. And so I kind of see it as this collateral damage of him taking 400 risks and overstepping beyond the screenwriters. And that's, that's kind of cool. The thing with the car alarm, it says... Um, he was almost to the door of the pawn shop before the first booster got to the Ford and tried to Slim Jim the lock. There was a loud pop, and when Kay looked back, all that remained of the would-be car thief was a smoking, dark spot on the sidewalk. He grinned. The very longer they stayed inside... What's that? I'm sorry, I was saying it's very much a bug zapper. Definitely. Uh, it says, uh, the longer they stayed inside, the safer the cars in this part of the, of the city were going to get. Kay opened the door as he heard another pop and grinned wider as he stepped into the pawn shop. All in a day's work. You're totally right. He loves to murder people who are in a desperate situation. Kay feels like a different type of guy in this book. On the whole, I would say. He's like a little lighter, and also he's chain smoking a lot. Yeah. A plot line that doesn't totally pay off for me. <laughs> so much of the movie is, in, is tied to these two actors. And I don't know that this book totally captures either of them. It would have been fun to read this book with with one of the other like uh, character, one of the other actors playing the the Will Smith part, like the Chris O'Donnell version, or the uh, who else did they try to cast? The David Schwimmer version. Like Ugh. you could read this book with with the David Schwimmer version in your head and see if that would have worked. Schwimmer? You don't care to, but you could. You were like Chris O'Donnell, and I was like, yes, of course, Chris O'Donnell. Yes, yes. And then you said Schwimmer, and my body, like, revolved. I mean, but, but this is kind of my big thing with, I'm like, I think this is a, a, a totally solid book. But they're, gonna, they're also pulling from basically perfect source material. But reading it, I just kept wanting to watch the movie. Mm. Because I'm just like, I just want to hear Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith and Vincent D'Onofrio and everybody else saying this dialogue because it's like, I mean, I don't know, maybe there is, you, you guys read a lot more novelizations than I do, but I'm just like, I don't, this movie is such a perfect movie that I think that, it, that there is not another, even though it's based on a comic book very loosely, but like that is the perfect medium for it. And I think any other version of it that doesn't, that's not a movie uh, is, is going to feel lacking because the, the performances are just so essential to it. You'd have to be doing a lot of work to do something different with a book, to like create, make it its own thing really strongly, a strong arthurial voice, something to make a book work in comparison to a perfect movie. And I'm, this one's not totally there. I like a lot of what it's doing. I think it's a trap, though, to think of the movie and the book as things that are one one will hold more merit than the other. And and by this I mean like the the act of picking up a novelization. Let me back up. The podcasting has become this topsy turvy 
bit of capitalism, where, in general, when you like a product, you pay more to get more or to get higher quality. But because, for whatever reason, podcasting was a thing that started out as free, now there are many podcasts where the really well-researched, well-thought-out, well-produced episodes are free, and the bonus content costs money and is of lower quality. I don't think it's bad, it's just true. And the reason that works is because you generate this, like, love for the thing in the free content, and then you're like, even though these things are not equal, I just want to buy in more. I just want to have this be a bigger part of my life to engage with this more. So, like, when we look up deleted scenes from a film, we're not going, I hope this deleted scene is better than the entirety of the movie, right? We're going, I want to get a little more taste of, you know, Troy or whatever it is. And, and I'm not going to read the Iliad. <laughs> and I'm not going to read the Iliad. Uh, <laughs> so that's how I feel about kind of this whole art form is I'm picking up Men in Black going, I, this is a fun movie. I like this movie. I want to see what the frosting is on the cake. I'm not expecting mm. a new cake or a cake of equal value. Yeah, I, I, well, I mean, I feel like my initial experience with this book back in the summer of 1997, was the ideal experience. I was the target audience for the movie. I loved it. I was also a child who could not just go back to the theater to see it immediately. And so the book allowed me to basically re-experience it because it, you know, every line of the book pr pretty much like conjures like, you know, the scenes from the movie. But then there's a little bit of extra stuff to be like, ooh, this is not just a carbon copy. I guess got like there, there's enough enough of like a you know to use one of those industry terms a value add mm -hmm. to be like totally like 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 worth buying it. It's like a you know it had some some things that I I know a bit more about the characters that I didn't before this. It is so funny too that there are sequels because a lot of the stuff that's invented here is just flat out wrong. It's been uncanoned. I mean, it, wait, wait for. Wait, such as? I just mean, uh, it, it, it was tough for me to read this book, having recently watched Men in Black 3 for the first time. It just totally changes a lot of what's going on. Oh, it was so cool that he became a man, a man in black because he was fast enough to catch an alien. No, that's not the real reason, you know? But you know what really matters is that Men in Black 3 made Paul Thomas Anderson cry. <laughs> That's really? beautiful. It really I, I did. Mean, I read an interview where he said that. Roland's good in that movie. Ethan, you would be the one to know that. Yep, yep. And so I went and rewatched the movie based on that, and I didn't really see it. In general, all of the sequels <laughs> struggle from the problem of we love Tommy Lee Jones, but we've written him out at the end of the first movie, but we have to get and him so back because he's intrinsic to what's successful about the first movie. The Tommy movie. Lee Jones write-in in the second one is the, is the, worst, the worst way to do it. Yeah. They, they, remind me, please. They okay. give him his memories back somehow, right? That's bad. He should be a guy who doesn't know shit. I think they should be able to give him his memories back. I think there's just like more options than they imagined. At the end of the first movie, he decides to go back to live with his sweetheart from 40 years ago or whatever. And they wipe his memory and, and whatever. He's retiring at age 50, by the way. So good job, Men in Black. <laughs> 
yeah. good retirement package. He's getting a pension versus he doesn't know why. He's just getting one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, he has to go work at the USPS apparently, right? I know, I know. With I love Bismarck a joke, but I'm very aware of the continuity. No. I know, I know. I allowed myself a little joke, but I'm very aware of the continuity. (laughs) (laughs) So, Go ahead, Andrew. Spell it out for us. Okay, so in the second one, they basically need him to come back because of some specific proprietary, like, knowledge that he has from a mission in the past, which is a great way to write him back in. The thing that they do that is so nasty that they did not need to do is they go, and... His relationship with the woman he went back for fell apart because on a subconscious level, he knows he's a man in black and he misses being a space spy. Yeah, that sucks. And there's, it's really bad because it, it undoes the happy ending of the first one. And it also suggests that the neuralizers like don't work and are fucking people up so bad. Well, we kind of get that indication in the movie. That's a fun thing that yeah. could be explored well. The neuralizer issue. I mean, that's what's happening in four a little bit, just to say. Chris Hemsworth gets neuralized as a man in black and doesn't remember he's been neuralized, but something about him is fucked up now. And every other person he works with is like, he used to be really nice and good at his job, and now he's an asshole and he keeps fucking up, (laughs) and we don't really know why. And the answer is he was neuralized and it fucked his brain up. And his brain is fighting to get his memories back. So like, Four is not good. I'm not saying watch it, but it's kind of engaging with this neuralizer situation a little bit. I mean, the, watching the first Men in Black in 2023, it is when we're just so used to how movie franchises are these days. It is always shocking that it ends without not only no real sequel set up or like spin off set up, but by like ending Tommy Lee Jones's story like that's it he is he is so done um but this is just I mean this has been said many times before about how Men in Black is really like maybe the only movie that's ever like really successfully pulled off uh the Ghostbusters formula of, like, big-budget, like, VFX-filled sci-fi that's also a legitimately great comedy. Uh, I, I, I The case could be made for Galaxy Quest being the only other one. But, like, mm-hmm. like it, but it has been proven over and over and over again how incredibly difficult it is to pull this off because so many have tried and failed. And, and then Men in Black, despite... Ghostbusters sequels. Exactly, exactly. Ghostbuster sequels, <laughs> Men in Black sequels. It's uh, but it's funny because both ghost, uh, both Men in Black and honestly Ghostbusters both seem like things that are designed to be serialized stories. Where it's like, oh yeah, they're people who have lots and lots of cases. Every movie could just be a case. They could also be TV shows. I mean, Men in Black. What's what's better than that the cartoon sequels was good. Is the, is the cartoon. Which I haven't seen since I was a kid, but I remember, I remember that yeah, same, you know but. it was it was fun, great theme song. Also looked weird. They used to and really have fun styles in animation for kids. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, but it, it is Men in Black is just I I think it's just such an interesting thing in that like it worked perfectly. They did it, and then they couldn't do it again. Barry Sonnenfeld couldn't direct good movies again. It was it, like. I don't know what, like, is the key thing just, like, 
like was it just that like ed solomon was the guy who knew how to crack this because also <laughs> he didn't write any of the other ones ed solomon is terrific i mean obviously you know co-created bill and ted but like you know he now like writes a lot of steven soderbergh stuff he's just he's a smart guy the film starts with the retirement of another agent right d is his name mm-hmm. right yeah. and mm-hmm. to me that means that the evolution of this team is is baked into the whole thing like people come through they pass out then that person, you know, the apprentice becomes the master. We bring someone else in. I think a second movie could have totally worked if it was actually about J and L, a character that I like a lot. And I think that the issue with the second one, I mean, there's many issues with the second one, including the, like, 9-11 inspired reshoots. And it's got to be the, the biggest VFX fall off between two movies that's ever occurred. Wasn't it less reshoots and more they just cut a ton of the movie out? Because it, it's so... Two is so short. It's so short. I replayed. I I guess I'm just going to talk about the trilogy because I just watched it all. I guess I'm going to talk about the sequels a lot. (laughs) I replayed the shot of Rosario Dawson getting in that little egg ship and flying off 15 times because it's the worst looking effect I've ever seen. And she gets in it and she's like, oh, and she's full of awe. And it's, it's like someone has drawn a circle around her and then the circle flies off. Anyway... I think that you could do sequels if the sequel wasn't predicated on undoing the work that was done at the end of the first film. Mm -hmm. Like Ghostbusters 2. I mean, well, well, there's also the the famous thing about how, like, I think Elle is great. I think Linda Fiorentino was great in this movie. (laughs) Um, You know, uh, apparently in their, like... What are you cackling about? She did this after the second one came out. She could have been in the second one. But no, no, no. It's it, it's that uh, everyone involved, ref- like they were like, we will not make a second one if she comes back. Well, really? Why? Oh, oh. okay. So I I don't want to speak out of turn. There's obviously the whole you know shitty sexist thing in Hollywood about like you know like women being difficult uh because they like i don't know had an an opinion or something like that linda fiorentino is a weird case where so many and look this could all be wrong a thing i've just heard a lot is that she is actually people have said that she is just very unpleasant just an unpleasant human being Hmm. uh i know like um uh, Kevin Smith has said for years that he's like really wishes he'd cast Jean Garofalo in Dogma in, in, in instead of her because it, it does she doesn't seem to get along with anybody. Her, her also her personal life is very strange. This it, is what I was gonna say is that in in 2007, of course, yeah, a reason that even if she had been in two, she would not be able to be in three <clears throat> is that she did like a real life femme fatale thing. Where she was dating a, a criminal wanted by the FBI, and so she then dated an FBI agent to help his case and access the FBI agent's files from his home and gave fed that info to her boyfriend. Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> it's kind of oh cool. Oh my god! It's a little That's cool. That's the coolest, craziest <laughs> shit I've ever heard. A Hollywood actress did that? Yes, to be clear, this was, this was Anthony Pelicano. I don't know who that is. That's I no one to really. me. 
Okay. Um, it is, but basically the thing is, I like Linda Fiorentino as an actor. Um, it doesn't seem like he's any, trying to move past. Her. Like, like, she like, dated the FBI agent at the no, same it's time. It's so crazy. As a person but, like, <laughs> currently watching the Americans, this makes me feel insane. This yeah, is unreal. No. I think I would. I just want to say, like, it's as a as a. This is such a like horny teenage boy thing to say. But every time there's a normal crime in the world, there's like a true crime thing. They're like normal looking people. It's funny that the FBI spy is so pretty. It's fun for me. I know. It's like, have you seen The Last Seduction? No. This this is a really good movie. Uh, but I'm like, this sounds like what her character in The Last Seduction would do. Um, it's so <laughs> wild. But yeah, it's, it's a thing where like, I wish she was in the second one. And I wish she was in a lot more movies. But... I, and again, I, I've also heard just, like, secondhand from people I know who know people who have met her. No one seems to get along with her. her like, at all. Her criminal mm-hmm. boyfriend mm-hmm. and that FBI agent sure did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it is... I, I, I don't know. That's I'm looking at her, the personal life section of her oh Wikipedia God. article right now, <laughs> and that's where it ends off. I don't know check. if she is still together with any of these people. Um... <laughs> But yeah, interesting. She's person. still dating the FBI agent and the criminal, and they're is like, "Is he like a mass murderer or something?" Do we do? Am I? Should I know his name? Anthony Pelicano. Yeah. Um. He is. Uh. He's a. Okay. Here's the first line of his Wikipedia article. Anthony J. Pelicano is a high-profile Los Angeles private investigator and convicted criminal known as a Hollywood fixer. John McTiernan ended up going to jail, I believe, because of working with this guy. <laughs> um, That's awesome. <laughs> uh, y- yeah, he, uh, he, he's... Uh, look, Anthony Pelicano has a long Wikipedia article involving a lot of weird stuff with other famous people. <laughs> That's our next podcast, Pelicano. Yeah. We'll run down all the stuff. Um, oh, we lost Hannah. No, Hannah. She was so shocked. She she's just she's just doing a Wikipedia deep dive on the guy. That's, That's definitely it. what's up. Let's oh see. oh, I I I forgot. There there's stuff here. I believe um, Pelicano was he was involved in um, the divorce proceedings between Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. I believe he uh, wiretapped them and recorded their conversations. Oh my god. <laughs> This this is an investigative podcast. This has potential all over it. It is. It, it does, right? Yeah. Anyway, uh, Linda Fiorentino dated this guy. To get, oh, Hannah's back. Here we go. To get, I'm so sorry. I literally, <laughs> I like typed in Anthony Pelicano or whatever. And the FBI shut up. My computer froze, like my mouse wouldn't move. I did control it, delete, nothing happened. I had to do that thing where you like smother your laptop to get it to shut off, to restart. Well, it's okay. All we were doing was talking about more Anthony Pelicano stuff, about his involvement in Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman's uh, divorce. Oh my God. Okay, I'm recording now. Sorry again. My computer said, don't Google that criminal, Hannah. (laughs) (laughs) wow it's like when you it's like when you google a a tom hanks thing that's too spicy and you get the anti-defamation league as the top result (laughs) now uh patrick were you trying to say something about her that wasn't about her crimes uh just that look 
you know, I, I, I don't want to seem like I'm spreading rumors or whatever. Just reports are that uh, every, like, the, 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 the primary trio behind Men in Black, uh, Mr. Smith, Mr. Jones, and Mr. Sonnenfeld, I believe all demanded that Linda Fiorentino could not return. Uh, wow. They would not deal with her. I hate to be um, rude, but couldn't even- you just recast her and pretend— Probably. Especially in the 90s. But, well, be, because it is the thing of like, I don't have like a great pitch for a sequel, but what, and I have not seen Men in Black 2 since the one time I saw it in theaters in 2002. But, you know, I'm sure there are lots of people who could be, you know, have like a, a fun, different dynamic with Will Smith. Like at the beginning, I remember, like, I recall be kind of enjoying, because Patrick Warburton is his partner, and then he's just like bad, and they're mm-hmm. like, well, we're going to mm-hmm. get rid of you. And I'm like, I don't know. I, I'd watch a movie with Patrick Warburton and Will Smith. That doesn't seem bad. And then bring Tommy Lee Jones along, but as a guy with uh, who with no memories, who he's, so he's like playing a different character. Well, the memory thing, too, you could do it the way they did it. And because it's a sci-fi series where you make up the rules, you could go, of course, we're going to re-neuralize you after we get the pertinent info. But instead, they just give him the saddest explanation possible, and then he returns to a job he didn't want to be in without the love of his life. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it, it's kind of the same thing about, like, you know, s- like sequels to romantic comedies where it's like, look, when there's a happy ending and people get together at the end of the first movie, don't tell like, I, I don't need to see what happens after that. Just let me believe yeah. that they live happily ever after. And uh, and that's what I want for Tommy Lee Jones. Also, the thing about sequels to this is, and and one thing that to tie it back into the book, um, a thing that I find really fascinating about this movie that I feel like would absolutely not happen if this were made now, is that we learn nothing about James Edwards' personal life. We don't see his home. We don't know about his family. If he has a girlfriend, nothing. <laughs> uh, and because the movie moves, this is like. One of the fastest moving movies I've ever seen. It's like there is mm-hmm. not a not like not a wasted second. It's great. And I'm just like, I like that like like like, you know, sure, I might kind of wonder like, where does he live? Like what's go you know, what's his life outside of being a cop? But the movie knows that we don't really need it. And uh the book gives you a little bit more that uh he goes home. And it talks a little bit about the apartment building he lives in, and uh, but yeah, I I like I'm I think this is on on sixty eight, and and the thing I find go. interesting about this is it's it's him weighing whether to become a man in black. He's like, is is my is my life good enough that I should keep going with it? Um, it says, bah, 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 bah. so he's walking through his neighborhood. It wasn't a bad part of town, relatively speaking. He seldom got awakened by gunshots, and he learned how to tune out the sirens. A couple of the neighbors in his apartment building usually nodded or smiled at him, though that was probably because they knew he was a cop. Even his landlady sometimes cut him some slack, because he was on the job. It didn't hurt to have one of New York's finest living in the building if a tenant got rowdy or some kid was casing the place to rip somebody off. Cienaba is more about that, whatever. Good to be a cop. Uh, There was a decent bodega half a block away from his place, had great burritos, and not bad ham and cheese sandwiches. Days he didn't feel like cooking, and that was most days. He could pick up something to eat there. 
And then he eventually turns a corner sort of in his thinking and he goes, uh, uh, that's what really nagged him. Sure, he had a pretty good life overall. True, the job was filled with deadwood, guys who are better suited to sitting in a toll booth than chasing down perps. But they weren't really his problem. Sooner or later, he'd make detective, get his gold shield, and the deadwood was part of the reason. Sooner or later, a diamond surrounded by a sea of mud is going to get noticed. Well, if the mud didn't keep shifting to cover the gem every time it saw daylight. It's, it's weird. We get details about his life, but the details about his life are not and I have friends, and I have GF, and I, it's, I love burritos, well, I, I mean, get I, some perks in my building. It's actually deeply sad. I think the thing with the story of Men in Black is that we, like, they need the audience to be fully on board with his decision to join up for this bizarre thing that will erase his entire existence from the world. And if they yeah. introduce, like, any other people in his life, suddenly we're going to be, like, questioning it too much and being like, I don't know, this is a weird but thing. Like, mom. Right, exactly. And so it's like, I think it's better to just don't mention anything. Mm -hmm. So we won't think about it. He thinks about his dad flipping burgers for two seconds at the end of the book. And it's like, do you have a dad? Where's this coming from? The most we can handle is that Kay used to have a girlfriend and he misses that. And that's his arc in the movie. And Kay so. didn't really get the choice, as they establish. Like, he just mm -hmm. ended up there and they're like, well, too bad. You're, like, in this for life now. Wouldn't it be fun if in two he whoopsie-daisied into another alien crime scene and they were like, ah, you! <laughs> <laughs> and he had flowers once again. It was like his yeah. anniversary. You know what you do? Because Tommy doesn't want to be in the movies, right? What you do is you have his wife whoops a daisy in and he's wandering <laughs> around in the background of scenes as like a guy who doesn't know and she's an agent. He's a dope. <laughs> That'd be fun. Yeah. That'd be fun. I just want him wearing like a light blue polo shirt the whole time. <laughs> yes. fun. A Hawaiian shirt. Oh my God. That would, that would be really good. Yeah. I, I want to know what his personality is like when he's, you know, when he's uh, not... A man in black. And also, I don't really want to rewatch two. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I don't remember it being good, and it's probably worse than I remember. Because I was still, like, I don't know. I was like, was I like 14, 15 when it came out? But, uh, yeah, I don't need to revisit it. Also, See, am I, I remember, remember, here's, ready? I remember thinking Men in Black 2 was perfectly fine. I remember kind of <laughs> liking it. But everyone tells me it's so bad. I'm, like, worried to rewatch it. I mean, I didn't hate it when I was a kid or when I, whenever I first saw it. But I was just like, all right, it was, it was fine. And so it's probably much worse than that. But am I remembering this correctly? In... Men in Black 2, did they add this new element because they're in a post-Matrix world where now they like can like float in the air and do kung fu? I think you imagined that. No, no, no. There, There is. Yeah, Zed is like doing it. flying kicks, isn't he? Doesn't like Zed like jump up and kick people in, in yeah. 2? Did I already block this out? Does Zed go Yoda <laughs> in Attack of the Clones? Yeah, I, I think it's kind of like a, you know, they're like, they'll like leap up really high and then they'll just like be like, you know, swinging their legs, you know, like in like Charlie's Angels and stuff. Jesus. Yeah. I may, Maybe I just, maybe I just decided not to remember that. The other thing about two, just, I will eventually talk about this movie. The other thing about two is uh, they, they suggest that Will Smith killed Elle. 
Somebody makes wait, a crack about L. Wait, what? And he goes, he goes, hey, she wanted to get back to the morgue. I just got her there a little quicker. I think I'd have to watch that delivery in context to see how I, I get that she that. works at the morgue. I get it. But the mm-hmm. way he says it. I just got her there a little quicker. <laughs> yeah. Or I, I just helped her or something like that. I, I imagine. See, I hear that and I imagine that they're like on a subway platform and then he like pushes her in front of a train. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like this at all. You know, let's, um, let's get back to Men in Black 1, a good movie we all like. <laughs> yeah, that ends with Elle, his new partner, who's uh, going to be a great man in black and she's cool. And Can lives you, forever. Do you guys remember how in the cartoon show she's blonde? What's up with that? That's fucked up. Was the, was it a Ghostbusters scenario? Where there's too many women, so they had to differentiate no, them? No, no. Where everyone looks completely different and Egon has oh. like crazy blonde hair? I mean, I do remember people looking a little different. I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think it's enough that she like had to be blonde. She could have just had dark hair. I think the best virtue of this book is how much it goes into the specifics of what Curb slash Edgar is going through and what it's like to be him. What a yeah. cool guy. Early Curb. on, when he crashes, we get... Oh, yeah, there she is. Yeah, she's Oh, no worries. For, like, why? It says, Curb extended one of his Sheila and grabbed the Edgar by the head. The Edgar went irk and fired his projectile weapon, but the blast was ill-aimed and did no harm, save possibly to bacterial passerby in the air. Curb dragged the Edgar into a ruined ship, killed it by carefully crushing the crunchy skull with his pincher, then examined the corpse. It was so skull is different shaped. Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's good on the part of Perry. He's covering his bases. Mm -hmm. It was so small. He would have had to fold himself into end space to get it on. And even then, it would be a struggle. And such flimsy integument. The skeleton was internal. What a stupid design. He'd have to spit code the inside or it would rip like spiger lace in a stiff breeze. And even then, it would be an iffy proposition to move without tearing the damn thing every time he moved. And the book has a lot of fun with never explaining what end space is. It's just... Uh, some other dimension you can fold yourself into, but it does keep revisiting the joke of he folded himself into end space and it hurts so bad. <laughs> I love the curb sections because they're so sprinkled with these little terminologies that are space and we don't know them as human beings and we can't know them. And it just gives some real verite to that perspective <laughs> that I really appreciate. A lot of space cursing. Like uh, I, yeah. I underlined... What kind of Ryan-esque quirt-kissing binju-licking dupe would give Terrans that kind of gear? Terrans being the <laughs> curb term for humans. I love it. One of his swears is spork, which eventually becomes spork. a real thing in reality. At some point, he's like, spork you, or something like that. I love it. I love when he like learns that the, the base human interaction is giving the middle finger. He's like, that, mm-hmm. that's, what a ver- that's maybe the best thing they've created, a very versatile <laughs> piece of communication. <laughs> I love I it. mean, that's also, like, one of those, one of the tropes that I think is just always fun that's usually in, like, science fiction stuff, it's just when either aliens or people from the past or future come to the present and then 
pick it, it's like the uh the one in what is it Star Trek 4 when uh what someone uh like calls Kirk a dumbass and he and he shouts like well double dumbass on you <laughs> like that's <laughs> it's always entertaining mhm i do like that curb knows the term a bad case of the munchies <laughs> <laughs> This is why I think that when Curb talks about how war feeds his family, it's because they're eating stuff. They're just eating their way through the galaxy. And the more sort of like dead debris that they can eat and feed on is better for them. Yeah, that's Andrew. like te- yeah. text of the film. I know. I'm just clarifying for Andrew, who oh, I yeah. think didn't have that when we started the episode. Yeah. A- Andrew, what do you think the bug is there for? On, what do you think the bug is on Earth, and what do you think his uh, lifestyle is like? <laughs> I'm extremely prepared for this question, and I'm so glad you asked. I thought that the bug was, in the way that you or I are engaged in commerce, where we have a job from which we profit, I thought that the bug made something involved in war that made him great money that allowed him food that he bought for his children. I did not think that it was such a straight line of the dead bodies are the food. I thought that there were a few more steps, but I think I'm wrong. I mean, maybe, but it, I don't think so. He eats people. He's like, I'm going to take Laurel with me and chomp on her personally. Yeah, that, that is a good point. This is when Curb is remarking on how L is not sexy. He has a whole thing where he's like, human women, ugh. Uh, it says... Things could surely be worse. He leaned back and looked at the female. Ugly creature. How could any male of any species possibly find such a, a monster like her sexually attractive? Perhaps she had some redeeming characteristic. Some hidden olfactory or other signal to draw in a male. You must have to be human to see it. For certainly, Edgar could not. It was hard enough telling the males from the females much less the differences between those of the same sex. They all looked alike to Edgar. Of course, this one was a keeper of the dead, a relatively exalted position where he came from. Being able to dispense corpse food was, after all, a position of some power. And now me, Galaxy Brain, I go, that's of course, he's an alien, and when, pe- when aliens die, they're different than humans, and their corpses still need to be fed. But yours makes more sense. I what I believe is the deal with it with the bug curb uh, as we we learn I I also I, I would love to know the genesis of the name curb I wonder if that was like ever written into like the shooting script just not said in dialogue or if uh, Steve Perry had the idea and then had to get it approved by like the people at Columbia uh, to be like can I can I give him a name. But uh, but the bug is an assassin who is sent there mm-hmm. uh, by, I don't know, some third party to kill these guys, steal the galaxy. That's mm. basically his point. But he uh, th- then also just thrives off of, like, off of war and just, like, you know, st- starting shit. Uh, as, you know, there's the part where when he's climbing up... Uh, into into the the flying saucer uh holding laurel and she's like you know 
Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a queen here. Uh, e eating me might start a war. And he goes, good. War means food and wealth for my family. All 78 million <laughs> of them. That's a lot of mouths to feed your highness, which I believe is just dialogue straight from the movie. But yeah, uh, you know, he like thrives off of these scenarios. But I think he's uh, an assassin who's like, he's sent there to get the galaxy. If you love war crimes, you might find a job as a war criminal. There's a key difference in, in the dialogue between the movie and the book, which maybe explains Andrew's problem, which is in the book, he says, war means food and wealth for my family. In the movie, it's just war means food for my family. Perry added mm. wealth. Mm. Good point. Good point, Ethan. Oh, so and then the human bodies are their fucking money, too? Is that what <laughs> yeah. you guys are saying? <laughs> the bones yeah, are their money. Yeah, I guess so. And, and so are the worms. <laughs> and so, yeah. I, oh the... So one, speaking of Steve Perry, author of this novel, mm. did I see this correct? Did, he also wrote uh, the Star Wars book, Shadows of the Empire. Yeah. Which I, I think I, I don't even think I knew it was the same author, but I read that like the same year that I read this. I read that thing. I read that thing when someone telling me a sex book would make, that I was reading a sex book would make me throw the book across the room in shame and horror. <laughs> And reading Shadows of the Empire, which has just enough sexuality in it that I was like, oh, no, what am I doing? Wait, I haven't read if it. I'm remembering correctly. Tell me, what's the deal with Shadows of the Empire? Is it like a one of those sequels to the to Jedi? If I'm remembering correctly, it takes place between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. Yes. So like Han Solo is not in it. And Leia is doing a lot of like diplomatic stuff with... Like hot alien princes, and mm. one of them really wants to fuck her. That's the one that introduces Dash Rendar. Really? Yeah. Well, so I, so the thing with Shadows of the Empire, it was the only Star Wars book I ever read, uh, because I didn't care about all the expanded universe stuff that came like after Return of the Jedi, and I read Shadows of the Empire because it was set within the timeline of the original mm -hmm. trilogy. But that was the big. Uh, it was this big initiative by Lucasfilm in the 90s because they knew that the special edition releases were coming and then the prequels. So they wanted to like really start like bringing Star Wars back into like, like you know, back in a big way. So they had mm -hmm. the N64 game, Shadows of the Empire, uh, and the novel that like came out at the same time. Mm. So it was this big, this big push. And uh, I... Did not play the video game, but I read the book, and all, and I, I remember literally nothing about it, other than there's a <laughs> character named Dash Rendar. I remember this sex plot because it yeah, scandalized me. Who's involved me. In, in the sex plot? Okay, so having, now that I'm revisiting, yes, the Wikipedia page, it's Leia and a crime lord whose name is Prince Zizor, <laughs> who, who attempts to seduce her. And I think she's like not. She doesn't do it, but like, there's there's some sexy stuff. Like, there's stuff happening that I. Is there a love triangle with them and Luke? Uh, no, I think Luke is doing his own thing. I don't okay. remember to be honest. But here's a line from the Wikipedia page. <clears throat> the publishers also instructed Perry to make Zizor's attempt to seduce Leia successful, but the author refused as he feared fan backlash. Good on you, Perry. Yeah, good call. Wow. Anyway, yeah. It, it was crazy for me to finish this book and then turn to the author page and be like, well, what? 
I mean, he was having a big couple years. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I read nothing but Star Wars novels when I was a kid, and I remember this one being like the the creme de la creme. Like that was that was the top shelf Star Wars. I'm gonna book. listen to this book within the next couple weeks for sure. You have to report back on if it is actually a sexy sex book, or if like <laughs> me at age nine was just like, oh god. I I expect to be really turned on by this children's <laughs> Star Wars book. It's not a children's Star Wars book. It's an adult Star Wars book. Okay. Very adult. Well. It's a grown-up book. As in, it's as adult as a 1996 Star Wars book could get. Well, Patrick, to your point about you were saying you you don't know, like, sort of what length of a leash they had Perry on for this novelization, Men in Black. I think back in the 90s, even for these big studio films, there was a lot less regulation on the novelization. I think that they likely didn't even communicate to this guy what was expected or what he wasn't allowed to do. Because, and given we've mostly interviewed authors who are more recent, who wrote books in like the 2000s, the 2010s, but this seems like a modern phenomenon or a recent phenomenon is the the studio that's like, you have to stick to the script. You have to. Mm. I'm inclined to believe that he, anything that's added here is something that he really thought should be there. And anything that remained intact is him going, this is a sturdy bone of the film. You're probably right because, I mean, just thinking about, I mean, considering that, you know, the Men in Black movie is clearly not aiming to build a big ongoing franchise because mm-hmm. if they were, Tommy Lee Jones would not retire and have his memory wiped at the end. And so the, I, I don't think like, the lore and the mythology and like the the inevitable interconnected universe was remotely on their minds at the time. So yeah, I think you're probably right. Uh, Steve Perry probably just handed it in. I don't know. Maybe they had two minor notes and uh, and then said good to go. There, I I imagine that he handed it in and the publishers went, okay. Well, the movie's closer to being finished now, and Will Smith has said some really funny stuff. <laughs> so could you drop in a couple of those funny things just to? Get but it, that's get it that, closer. That but that's the thing. Like they don't have uh, it. Just be raining black people in New York. <laughs> uh, Knock your punk ass down. Is that in there? Yeah. Seriously, those two lines in his first scene, d- incredible. So good. Like you know, I feel like I'm gonna break this damn thing when he gets the noisy cricket. Like so many of the good lines are are uh, are just not there. Like what he says to Beatrice after you know after they neuralize her. Yeah. Oh, oh, I think maybe maybe the Will Smith line that makes me laugh the hardest, absolutely not in the book, is when in the, in the scene where they visit Frank the Pug, which is an incredible scene. Yeah. Uh, and Tommy Lee Jones is shaking him, and a guy looks them on the street, and Will Smith goes, "Oh, it's okay. The dog owes my friend money." <laughs> the dog owes my friend money. <laughs> it's such a good line, not in the book, and so I assume not in the script, because if it were in the script, why would you cut that? I mean, honestly, that's really funny. There's so much, and I feel like, Andrew, you covered this a bit in your intro, that is visually funny, like Tommy Lee Jones shaking that dog, which is so funny. Um, Or even the man who accompanies Frank the Pug, who is just like a ghoul. Yes. Because you, like Jay, you know, are thinking like, well, that man's the alien, and then it's the dog, right? That's the joke. The book cannot achieve those things the same way. And just doesn't try. I wish it tried a little bit harder on some of those visual things. 
So episode like 140, I finally wrote an intro you agree with. Yeah, you did. Usually my intros are going, this book adds color, blah, blah, blah. And then Hannah's like, and I'm it's, going, a, it's garbage. This is a racist book. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I think you got this one. I will say, I, I've heard a lot less of these. I quite liked this intro. I thought, I thought it was really solid. Oh, thank Good you. Job, and you Andrew. felt that way about the game that's coming up also. Yes, I, I, I bet I'm going to love the game at the end of this episode. I bet it'll make <laughs> a ton of sense and, will be, and, and fun will be had by all. I agree. Speaking of Frank the Pug, in the book, we get this passage that really spoke to me personally. Mm -hmm. uh, he's shaking the pug. We, you know, the scene we were just talking about it says a couple of pedestrians slowed to glare at Kay. You could mug a nun on fifth Avenue during rush hour and nobody would stop to help. But if you mistreated a dog, book it, a lynch mob would quickly form to string you up. Jay remembered seeing a news clip once of some natural disaster in South America or Central America, an earthquake. All these peons sitting under their knockdown shacks had no food, no water, no place to sleep, but out in the rain. Old grannies, women with babies. There had been a mama dog with a couple of puppies in the back of the scene. The TV station got thousands of letters offering to help. Most of the letters were offering to help the dogs. It's a thing I think about almost every day in real life. Because this is just an ongoing attitude people have where they're... They love puppies and they hate uh, humans they could be helping. But there's no reason for that to be there. Perry's just going, why not? Why not? There's no reason for a lot of this to be there. <laughs> Can I talk about the thing that drove me really crazy in this? Sure. Yeah. Yes. Was when Jay is revealed to basically be a pop culture junkie who is constantly making little quips and references to everything. Star Wars, the Twilight Zone. He knows the Twilight Zone intimately. Which, it just drags the coolness level on this character down so hard. <laughs> Every time it happened, it just took the wind out of my sails so dramatically. When they are going upside down and stuff through the tunnel, another bit of visual humor of like Will Smith turning himself right side up and then having to do it again. <laughs> Kay is giving like a really crazy little speech, right? That is not in the movie. I don't know if I can find it. Now. Oh, oh, that one. You know, what is, the, is that? I, I vaguely remember that as one of those pop culture things. I'm like, why are you talking so much, man? Chill out. Jesus. Be cool instead. It's page 187 if you'd like okay. to jump Let's to it. See. That's a, that's that's a, a murder-death yeah. kill. That demolition man. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> I love to edit. <laughs> leave it all in <laughs> you just have to reference it a bunch so i can't take it out i just uh i agree with you ethan it's so it really feels like k as a character only came together when they cast tommy lee jones and put him on a set next to will smith and we're like oh the dynamic is high energy low energy it's cool guy like cool in a 90s way guy it's dichotomy we get it we got it we nailed it uh, and the book doesn't have that. It's playing with a different conception of that character, it feels like. I, I also would like to point out one thing that the book absolutely does not capture at all, because I don't think there's... 
I don't think the written word could ever capture this, is um the outfits that uh, Jay wears before he joins the Men in Black, which are, I think, some of like the greatest fits anyone's ever worn in a movie. <laughs> I, the way he's introduced in orange jumpsuit tied around his waist and white football jersey. And this is a what cropped an, uh, jersey. Cropped jersey. This is what an on-duty NYPD officer wears. <laughs> Everyone else in full uniform. And he's wearing that. Like, the uh, his red leather jacket, which would be the craziest thing anyone wears in any other movie, is so tame compared to then the his first outfit and then his third outfit. The one where... How... How do you describe those pants? What is the logo that is across the crotch of his pants? CTK. What is that? I think it's like a... I, I mean, it looks like a... They look like like ski pants to me. Like snow pants, you know? Yeah. Either way, to know. me, it, like as, a, as a, an eight-year-old child in the 90s, I saw that man was like, that must be the coolest person in the world. <laughs> and like, they, those are what I cool mean, he clothes is. are. I, I mean, he is, but also like any other human being would look like the dumbest moron alive if they tried to wear those. But he, he pulls it off. This is the key to both Will Smith and Jay is, unlike you, I make this look good. That's it. it is he can true. do it. It's I think pretty much anybody totally else true. in the wild, wild west get up to with the vest would be terrible. The tiny sunglasses? The yeah, tiny it wouldn't look sunglasses as good. The <laughs> Even Will Smith's last outfit in this movie, which is like a pre-Matrix Nehru jacket styled men in black outfit, would look dumb as fuck on anybody but Will Smith. He's it's true. It, off. it is funny how the men in black seem so strict about their dress code. And then in the final scene, they're like, well, you're so cool. We're going to bend the rules for you. You and no one else. He saved the world. He gets to change the rules a little bit. <laughs> he, he, despite the fact that they save the world every day, as they establish. I just, to be clear, <laughs> I love this. It, it's a, a thing that I, I was kind of obsessed with He's as a kid. He's so good at this job. He saved the world on his first day as a man in black. Yes. So good at it that his partner who'd been there for 30 years was like, you got it, kid. You don't need me anymore. <laughs> it's true. One day. There's a, th uh, a thing that I think as a child I assumed was a trope, even though only two movies do it, which are Men in Black and The Matrix. Both have a, a, a cool protagonist who dresses in cool black clothes. And then during the final scene, which is just like them standing on the sidewalk, they just get a slightly upgraded wardrobe just for like 30 seconds of screen time with a different <laughs> color. And, and it's awesome. You only see a glimpse of it. And, and, and notably, that outfit from like the last 30 seconds in both cases does not come back in the sequel. A shame. Yeah. I mean, is anybody doing costume design like they were in 1997? Nope. Absolutely not. Patrick, can we count the the Resident Evil movie where at the end she gets to be six of her? Does, is that count as like a new, a new outfit? And then in I'm the next sorry. movie, there aren't six of her. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This I know this is an audio medium, but I clicked the link that Hannah just sent in the chat. <laughs> and it's a really good photo. Look, sometimes I'm doing a little Google research to find out the logo on the front of his 
<laughs> parachute pants. And I come across a picture so good, I have to share it. <laughs> and we'll post it to the Instagram if we remember, which if, we probably won't. If we remember. Did you all find that sometimes Steve Perry would write a sentence or paragraph that made no damn sense? Give me an example, honey. Oh, I have I have an example that... By the way, do you all have books filled with uh, post-it notes? I have little dog-eared pages. Yeah. I don't do post-it notes. I yeah, I... So, I, 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 to be clear, I uh, don't. I have uh, nothing. <laughs> but I assumed... I assumed you all would. In particular, and Andrew, take this in a in a in a good way. Um, I was like, Andrew Overby is definitely a guy who uh, has a lot of different colored post-it notes in this book right now. I will say, I'm not so organized that the colors mean anything. <laughs> they just are pretty. That's okay. Page fifty-one. It looks so professional. Thank you so much. I I I make this look good. Page fifty-one. We get this sentence. During the winter, first time the snow fell and covered the city, making everything pristine white or pristine white for a few moments, it looked nicer. But for New York in the summer, it was about as good as it got. One sentence, eight commas. I, I even if you allow yourself that many commas, I don't understand the sentence. During the winter, first time the snow fell and covered the city, making everything pristine white for a few moments, it looked nicer. But for New York in the summer, it was about as good as it got. There were just a few of these where I was like, what is, what is this? What is that even saying? Is he saying the snow's better or the summer's better? The snow's better, but as far as summer goes, this is good. Yeah. So when he, in that moment, there's not snow on the ground? No. No, in <laughs> winter, when there's snow on the ground, New York looks nice. But in the summer, which it currently is, this is as nice as it looks currently. Look, even though I'm the the dummy here it's yeah. a weird sentence right it's it's a little inside out Cybertech pants buy those patrick i'm trying to find S- them <laughs> <laughs> so i i have another example of something that doesn't make any sense yes. uh so this is this is during the period where it turns into just a full-scale disaster movie and like cities are being wiped off the planet mm-hmm. page 177 Gobi Desert, Kay said, as a pillar of sand and flame roared skyward, nearly matching the first impact. Gonna be a lot of glass lying around there, somebody said. Maybe not for very long, Kay said. History implies there's somebody around to remember it. Nobody used the word history. Yeah, that seems like a sideways thought. <laughs> yeah, it's, what it seems to me is that maybe Perry cut or changed a line. He had somebody say history. Kay referenced it, and then he changed the line, so the reference now attaches to nothing. Mm. I read this passage so many times the other day. <laughs> okay, how about this one? Zed shook his head. Well, there aren't any galaxies on Orion's belt. He, he goes on to say more about how that's stupid. And then it says, Jay smiled. You're attracted to me, aren't you? I understand. <laughs> that's a joke. I, what's the joke? <laughs> the joke is that Zed is being kind of mean to him, and in the same way that a little boy pulls pigtails... <laughs> and is mean to someone they like, Jay is subverting the meanness by being like, I get it, you got a crush on me. I'm supposed to get all of that? All of that implied? I did. It's not, it doesn't work so well in the written medium. You can imagine Will Smith being like, oh, I get it, you're into me. And that works. But written, I agree, it's not super obvious, intuitive, uh, clear that it that is what's happening. But I think that's what's happening in that moment. Okay. 
There were pages of this book where I just went, I just got to turn the page. I'm not, I'm not yeah. going to get this one. I mean, this thing like totally rolls nicely. I think there's a couple moments where Jay is like a little sexist in ways that turned me off that felt out of character. Um, there's some part where he's talking to Laurel and he's like, look, girl, uh, I can only drive the car. You're not allowed to drive the car. You know what I mean? And I was like, where is this coming from, sir? It's in that's in the movie, too. I don't like it. <laughs> it felt weird. I, I think there's a lot of throwaway lines in the movie that the movie's moving so fast and the deliveries are so charming and fast that I never heard that. And then seeing it on the page, I was like, damn. Wait, bruh. which one about yeah. driving the car? Is this at the very end? No, it's when he's in the morgue, he says, uh, he thinks she's coming right. on to him. And it is just this quick line where he's like, and I got to drive. It's not some macho thing. That's just how I roll. I think it's also the, the key thing in that scene is that uh, he looks stupid because she's trying to indicate something totally different. Yes. It is so funny in the movie when she is like, I have something to show you. And he's like, what, your <laughs> pussy? <laughs> and she's obviously in distress. I do think that scene, even in the movie, is confusingly written, the driving line, because the the whole joke there is that he thinks it's a sexual situation and she doesn't. And he says, it's not a macho thing, but I got to drive. And, and I, I remember just being like, is it innuendo? What does he mean by that? And he just meant his car? Yes. They weren't in the car or near a car at all. <laughs> Whatever. True. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, at one point, Jay wonders uh, why a cop is acting a certain way because if he was still a cop, he'd just go to the person's home and key their car. That felt weird. This book is weirdly pro-cop and occasionally like at cops, though. <laughs> yeah, it's pro-cops being shitty. <laughs> yes. They're shitty, and yeah. that is cool of them. Well, also, uh, as we learn from uh, this scene with Kay's uh, car security system, um, really hates criminals. The scum of the <laughs> earth, and they should all be wiped out like bugs. What was Kay doing before... He was a man in black. Was he like just a farm boy, or no? He uh, he was training to idea? be a cop because he loved police brutality and just wanted to kill every criminal <laughs> on earth. There we are, asked and answered. I'm just flipping through looking for the random lines I underline now. I think maybe my favorite line in the whole book is just when Curb has a huge meltdown about. I, I think it's when the the you know jewels turn out to be not what he expected them to be. The section just ends with, why was his life so much harder than everyone else's? It wasn't fair. <laughs> Which is just the kind of stuff that I'm really glad I know is what the bug is thinking in the Egger suit the whole time. Also, I'd like to point out, um, while everyone else has been flipping through the book to find uh, fun passages, I have spent this entire time trying to see if um, Will Smith's pants are available to buy anywhere. And it mm -hmm. uh, turns out the CTK there by a company called Cybertech Racing, which I believe is a motocross company. Uh, and um, it doesn't seem to be around anymore. Uh, I have found on eBay they have some Cybertech jackets but uh, that have the CTK logo, but no pants. To be clear, I'm fully aware that I could never pull off those pants. I would not dare wear them in public. But uh, I still think it would be cool to own them, just to say that I have. You'd hang them. them on the wall. I exactly. Yeah. It would. It, I'd, I'd be like uh, in Spider-Man Two, the scene where J. Jonah Jameson has just like 
the Spider-Man suit like pinned mm-hmm. on his wall. I'd do that. <laughs> um, but with Will Smith's suit uh, and his cool like striped, like like asymmetrical striped t-shirt, um, I'd do that. You could do an, a stri- an asymmetrical striped t-shirt. That would be fine and vaguely on brand for yeah, you. Uh, you could do that part of it. I don't know. I, I Well, it has vertical stripes, and I, I don't know if I could get away with that. But I... <laughs> Mix it up, bitch. But yeah, but the pants, like, you can't buy these anywhere. I guess in 1997, everyone saw this movie, and they were like, oh my god, and they bought them all <laughs> And <up>. then <laughs> uh, two years later, and like, burned them all, them. and there are none available. <laughs> Everyone's still holding on to them in, like, careful tissue paper Th- wrap that's boxes. That's it. Look, if anyone listening to this um, has a pair of the Cybertech pants... Uh, worn by Will Smith. Not the ones he wore on screen, just the same, like, design model. Uh, ideally in my size, but I'll take what I can get. Um, please, you know, just, uh, hit me up, you know, uh, Patrick H. Willems on social media platforms. Uh, I'd love to know if I can get my hands on these. I'd like to read a line from the book that I really liked. Sure. It's on page one. Oh, geez. (laughs) First line of the book. It was past midnight, and the state road was as quiet as the inside of a coffin buried a hundred years. I read that, and I was like, this book's gonna fuck. (laughs) I'm not sure anything quite lives up to that, but I was like, great start. Amazing way to be. I'm totally on board. I'm in it. There's a couple of those just in the first couple pages. Mm -hmm. Uh, It sounded like a combination of a lizard eating a moth and a jar full of angry wasps. Evocative. Yeah. Janice was pale as a room full of Republicans in Georgia. Funny. <laughs> Even when Perry isn't adding stuff, plot-wise, he's always doing stuff mm. like that. I mean, in that in that yeah. one I already read where uh, he's possessing Edgar, they have that line about, you know, the, the laser beam to killing a bunch of bacteria going about their business. He's always adding a little bit of sauce. Classic Perry. Classic Perry. <laughs> I love the little bit of vernacular where Curb Edgar refers to all the other bugs as like little brothers. Mm-hmm. I think that's really cute. It's really nice. I mean, in a book where I shouldn't have any sympathy or care for Edgar... Um, because he's a he's the villain. He's a bad bug. I was like, oh, he loves his little relatives, his little earth bug family. And there was a part where some of the when the bugs like come out of his sleeves and start to leave, and he's like, well, I can't make them stay. God bless them on their journeys, essentially. And I was like, I love this, Edgar. Are you saying this made you have sympathy and feel fondness for cockroaches? No. Okay. Mm-mm. <laughs> just people who uh, as could patrick have knows that. the apartment i lived in was just infested all the time and it was the curse of my existence when i was in Brooklyn. So, a lot of bugs no they can they can die also millipedes which i hate more than anything in the world. i i don't like millipedes that i'm just gonna say it way too many legs too many legs like, like unacceptable this is i think why in my brain i thought that edgar in his bug form, was a millipede. It's the grossest thing. Because I was like, what's the grossest form of a bug? Exactly. And I was like, it must be. I have a very clear image. And it's the face. It's the same face that the Edgar bug has, but then on a longer millipede body. So many fucking legs on those things. Not a fan. One piece of world... I hate millipedes, too. I don't have much to add, but I think they're (laughs) gross as hell. Ethan, your stance on millipedes. Cool bugs. (laughs) <laughs> Boo. 
Ooh. Only in the abstract. If I encountered one, I'd be very unhappy. A, uh, a piece of world building I really like here is where they're describing humanity's history with aliens. And uh, Kay says, well, yes, first few years we had aliens coming to visit. I reckon the Eiffel Tower and the Brooklyn Bridge got sold to some of the more gullible tourists a few hundred times. And a whole bunch of swampland in Florida got peddled too. No. Oh yeah. We nearly had an all-out war when a Volvarian, Volvarian, underline that one, businessman tried to take possession of the Chrysler building a few years back. <laughs> Which is a funny little detail. It's like, we are essentially bugs to all these aliens who don't think we're intelligent life, but we are intelligent enough to con them sometimes. A classic tourism scam. Yeah. That's us. That's humanity for you. I think everything Men in Black has to say about like the ways in which we deal with immigrants is good. Expand on that. I mean, I think it sounds like um, in the uh, I think that as a police force, the Men in Black are a little aggressive to our immigrated alien neighbors. But that's cops for you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, they're like they're just like us. They just want to live here and survive and have kids and. That's cool. Like, we're, you know, we're keeping an eye on them because they're big, gooey aliens, and we're not totally comfortable with that yet. But at the base of it, like, we're all just living the same life. You go to a different country, you go, you cross the border for lunch or whatever, you check in, the paperwork's annoying, it's a hassle, you gotta, like, get the right clothes, and it's a bummer. And then, uh, you know, I, I like the the metaphor at play. Yeah, I, I mean, I think one of the best scenes in... Men in Black, I mean, I'm thinking mostly of the movie just because it's so vivid in my mind. But uh, the scene where they they go, uh, you know, catch up with Reggie, who's like trying to skip town. And, you know, Kay knows Reggie. You know, he's dealt with him before. Reggie's got a pregnant wife. Uh, You know, he's just just trying to get out, like, you know, keep his baby safe. It's, uh, I I, I, I like the idea that while... While this story is mostly about the men in black dealing with like a a really like a a a, a terrible criminal and a world ending threat, that probably a lot of their day job is dealing with people like Reggie, uh, just dealing with like you know you didn't get the right paperwork exactly. and we're just checking in. And I like that Kay is like, okay, well on your way, that's all right. We're gonna make an exception here. You got a yeah. kid. It's no congratulations, way. Reg. It's a uh, squid. <laughs> Well, not to mention the movie literally opens with him uh, excusing actual uh, immigrants who are coming over via some sort of coyote. Yeah. Doesn't get more on the nose than that, right? Right. And and he even has the line about, like, uh, yes, you're, like, protecting us from the dangerous aliens. Should we read the thing about Laurel wanting to be a doctor? Feels like a big omission to not do it. We've talked about it. I don't think you have to read all of it. I think you can just cover the base. Patrick, will you want to read it? It's on... Uh, Hannah's right that my vo- people have gotten enough of my voice. It's on 189. I'm here. I mean, this is the page that stuck in my brain for 25 years and made me pick this book. <laughs> I immediately looked down and I'm just like, oh, that's a word I shouldn't say on Mike. Oh, Yeah, well, you know, this book was written in 1997. It was. People were still saying that in movies until, like, I don't know, eight years ago. 
I met a guy two years ago who was still saying it casually, and I was like, ugh, where am I? Why did I come here? You, the, luckily, you can just skip it. It's For the listener, it's the R word. Used as a derogatory. Yes. Exactly. Um, right. When she was a little girl, Laurel had owned a Barbie doll, and a Ken, and a Malibu beach house, and probably several hundred dollars worth of other Barbie stuff she'd begged her parents to buy her. Her year-older jerk of a brother, William Daniel, called B.D. by his twerp friends, had been into sci-fi. One day, while she was playing in the treehouse with her friend Elizabeth, B.D. had gone into her room and kidnapped Barbie and Ken. Very topical. By the time Laurel found out, B.D. had already gone out into the summer sunshine and subjected Barbie to the alien death ray, a big magnifying glass. He'd singed her beautiful blonde hair off, melted big holes in her. Then he had sliced her in half. It must have taken a long time, even as big as the magnifying glass was. Barbie was a smoldering, stinking ruin when B.D. decided that the alien invaders had dealt with her enough and started on Ken. When she found him with Barbie, Laurel was so enraged that she wanted nothing more than to kill her brother. The only weapon at hand was the garden hose. She picked it up and swung the end of it like a stick, clonked BD on the top of the head with the hose's metal nozzle, and split his scalp open enough to require 12 (laughs) stitches. It was the day after the 4th of July, and the emergency room had been full of waiting patients with hands blasted by firecrackers and burned by sparklers, plus a bus full of people from a church picnic where the potato salad had gone bad. People were puking everywhere, kids were yelling, and her brother was making as much noise as anybody. Her parents had not been pleased. That was the day Laurel decided to become a doctor, not to help her idiot brother, but to fix Barbie. Should I stop there? (laughs) I like that it goes on to be like, but then she was like, I can't fix it, and I hate people, so I guess I'll work in the morgue. Unfortunately, Barbie was dead and beyond the skills of even the best doll doctor to repair. (laughs) Well, look, I I, I think she learned an important lesson from dealing with her brother there, as she says in the movie, I hate the living. Yeah, I think the alien job seems like a little more fun and pleasant for her. Steve Perry ate his damn Wheaties that morning. He sure did. Yeah. He woke up and he cracked those knuckles and he was like, I got it. Yes, this is much more detail than he puts into anything else in the entire book. And like I said, that it stuck with me for 25 years. I forgot, I mean, most of the rest of the book is mostly just the movie, but that page, I never forgot. So I, here's one thing. I want to talk about the physical media of the book for one second. I like that each chapter has this little side black bar. And that every page has a top black bar. I think that's a cool uh, setup yep. of the page. I think it looks different. It feels very in line with Men in Black. As a side note, I think it's funny that like the logo title treatment in the movie is not what they decided on for the poster. They're like, not cool enough. We're not doing it. We're going cool instead. Uh, everything is spelled out. So like K is K-A-Y and J is J-A-Y and whatever. Um, in Men in Black 4, one of the main characters is H. How would you spell that in a book? Wait, this is not, isn't one of the characters, doesn't Liam Neeson play like high T? Yes, he's T. Okay. Oh, I wanted to ask um, about that. Why is ZZ if he's not from a nation that would use that letter or that pronunciation of that letter? Well, okay, this, I, this brings <laughs> up a question that I have always had since I was a child. Are the Men in Black limited to only 26 members at any given time? I was thinking that too. 
It doesn't look like it. Do they just have multiple people who go by Jay? Like, is... The Barbie situation. Right. Everybody's Barbie, yeah. But, it, like, is Zed Zed because there's also a Z? <laughs> mm. And it's a, it's like when you have to add your middle name in SAG and you become the more famous one. So, exactly. like, Philip Hoffman's out there, but he amounted to nothing, and you just had to be Philip Seymour Hoffman. And Zed is like, Z works in the mailroom. Can I be Z? Like, sorry, you came second. Yeah. We hired you second. I'm just, I'm so... Great question. I'm so curious. And, I, and, I, and again, Men in Black is not huge on lore. Uh, and I, you know, I just wonder. Because, look, when they have, like, those containment teams show up with their flamethrowers and everything... There's a lot of people there. All those guys are men in black agents whose name is a letter. And honestly, most people's human, whatever, given names don't start with letters like X or Q or the tough ones, right. you know? There's a lot of like P's, J's, and R's. Do you think yeah. they go the more problematic route and they have people that they've just given some character from another alphabet? I mean, I I bet that I'm sure that the Men in Black office headquarters in Abu Dhabi uses Arabic letters. Sure, but I mean, if we ran out of, of which there are many more of them. Excuse me, we have we've seen their system. If they ran out of letters and then and then they got another white guy, would they give him an Arabic letter just because they needed a new? No, letter? they type out their name and they hit the delete button a bunch of times, <laughs> and then they get to one yeah. remaining letter, and that's how it is. Um, and, and like they have the, the part when, uh, we see Jay's locker and the locker just says Jay. And I'm like, I don't know. Do they have like teams of people and they're like, okay. And every team is like 26 people. So it's like, okay, so you're alpha team and there's a uh, A through Z or Z on alpha team. And then there's beta team and we just do the same letters again. And, uh, but they try to just keep people only working with members of their team. I don't know. I really would love to know. I mean, is it, what are we supposed to read, if anything, that our main characters are JKL? They're in sequence. Hmm. Just a also funny coincidence, Zed. but it's a thing. Yeah, JKL and also Zed. <laughs> you know, I don't want to harp, but again, if you're writing the novelization of Men in Black International, M-I-B-I, how are you spelling out H? His name is H. <laughs> And I think they say explicitly his name is, like, Henry, originally. Hmm. But, like, how do you put that into a book? Is there a novelization? I don't know. Of Men in Black Yeah, for four, there is one. I think the only one that doesn't have one is three. Can't wait to find out. Please don't make me come on that episode. I hate this, but we have to cover it. It's a terrible, we terrible will, movie, and we have Hannah, to cover it because I need to know. It, but uh, Patrick, part of I the reason—part of the reason we're doing Men in Black now is because uh, you you came on two times. We had a great time with you, and then I just realized I was just sitting around one day, and I went, "I made him read two really long books, and I told him what they had to be." And then I was like, to just keep this relationship going, I think I got to tell him to choose one. Yeah, I didn't realize that other guests got a choice. I was just, yeah. I, I, I just received an email that said, hello, uh, will you read the 500 page 47 Ronin book? Maybe it was 400. I, I, I don't know. It was 450. Guys, I went onto Amazon 
I found the Kindle version of Men in Black International, and I have read the sample. I have glanced at the sample, and the answer is they aren't spelling out letters like they do in this book. It's just the letter H. Wow. So lazy. You know, Steve Perry would never do that. He would never. Patrick, just so you know, the reason we asked you to do the 47 Ronin specifically is because it might be hard to believe, but uh, not one people were clamoring to do. I was like... Nobody knows Joan is the master. I have oh. to show someone Joan is the master. Oh, so I was your last choice. You ran it by all other recurring guests. No, and that's, finally not, it's like, like, that's like, not like, what I mean at all. Patrick will What I it. mean is that when people would come to us and be like, I want to be on the show, for, for like a year, I would go, I really want to cover 47 Ronin at some point. And they'd go, good luck with that. And then eventually I was like, didn't Patrick have a Keanu podcast? Can I make the specific ask? So that's that's what happened. So the moral of the story is uh, me, number one guest, uh, did what no one else was willing to do. <laughs> yes. Actually, no, sorry. I feel like Ethan is number one guest because he became a co-host. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, what, what I, I was talking to Ethan recently and, uh, and he was like, yeah. And I was like, oh, I was on three times too. And I was like, oh, but you know, you're a co-host now. And he's like, well, I was on three times in six months. And I was like, yeah, yeah. I, I did one a year. Yeah, well, Patrick, we like him better than you. What can I say? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I also like him better than me. I get it. <laughs> I'm glad we moved off topic. I feel like I dug myself out of that. I was your last choice thing so well. That was so good. <laughs> Incredible social engineering. And then he dug us right back into it. Remember when I said that? Look, it's fun to make the hosts feel uncomfortable. Let's talk neuralizers. Oh, no, go ahead. Let's talk neuralizers. I love that this book has Jay go, why don't we run up to Edgar and neuralize him? And Kay goes, that just wouldn't work. But it's a great thought. Doesn't work on bugs. Oh, my. They're like Toydarians in Jedi Mind Tricks. I gotta trust you on that one. Which is there a toy Darian in a movie? This. Would I recognize Watto? It's Watto. Oh, Watto! Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. That's right. And he's like, "Your my drugs don't work on me." Uh, no, no. Come on, that's not how he sounds. I can't do the full thing. I did my best, Patrick. Okay. No, I, I'm, I'm just, I? I, I, I'm not gonna do it either. None of us want to do that little no. voice. None of us. But I, uh, but anyway, Jedi mind tricks do not work on him. Hannah, you had something to say about the neuralizers? Um, I feel like it is an insane piece of technology that is used very flippantly mm-hmm. throughout this story. It is, you know, I think that if you think back on Men in Black, correct me if I'm wrong here, my impression of the neuralizer is you zoop, and then you have to tell people what they remember, and it replaces the memory, right? Kay is running around this book, particularly, zoop zooping people. Not filling in any memory gaps. When they neuralize Laurel the second or third time, they just walk out and like the cleanup team is coming in and Kay's like, uh, do something about that. She's fuzzy. We didn't fucking touch her. She's a, a glob right now. She needs a memory. Make it a happy memory. One of my favorite little pieces of... Uh, one of my favorite little bits of physical acting that the book could never quite capture is when when he neuralizes Laurel, and then they, like, get sidetracked, and then he does it again, and Will Smith, like, frantically, like, puts his sunglasses back on. Like, like <laughs> Kate is so loosey-goosey about just, like, neuralizing everyone. I, I mean, the thing with the neuralizer is I feel like 
as much as this was like, you know, an enormously popular movie, like other than Titanic, the highest grossing film of 1997, but like the Neuralizer does feel like the thing that just stuck around in, in pop culture the most, where that's just like, mm. it, it like you can just say like, oh, I wish I could like, you know, neuralize myself after, if you like watched a bad movie or something. And that's like, that's now just a thing everyone gets. I love the prop too like it ha- it looks great it has those little dials really good little prop makes a little light it's great when the cleanup crew like is like everybody come in everybody a little closer please because they're gonna zap everybody the the little subplot in the book where Kay is a smoker which in the movie if it ever existed in the movie exists exclusively for the gag where he goes to light his cigarette and goop falls on it and he looks up which by the way right. david cross dead in the book dead he feels dead oh, in the he's, movie he's to me. He's dead in the movie. He's in two. What? Really? Yeah, he's fine. He's in two. Isn't he in two as a different character? No, no. I think he's just, is he playing a, di- that'd be crazy. I hope he's playing a different character because that guy seems dead. He's, wait, David Cross is in two? He's in two and it's weird because then he's not in three and it feels like, why, why do that? <laughs> Also, like, of course Edgar would kill him. He's been squatting bugs, squishing bugs. Yeah, and he kills people, like, willy-nilly. Like, you know, the guy that he, like, yeah. breaks in half in the restaurant. Look, it makes death. sense to me, but I got a report. He's in two. Wait, but what? Who, who I is, believe you, but is it the same character? He? It's, I'm unclear about this. this we could Google this, but he's, <laughs> okay, he's you Google a that. guy who lives with his mom, and then he witnesses some weird bug shit in, in two. I can't believe we're all going to have to watch two, like, tonight. The thing that's crazy about the Neuralizers in two is at the end, everyone has witnessed some sort of um, battle over New York City or something that just is, is, uh, thousands of people saw it, and they make the Statue of Liberty neuralize everyone, which doesn't seem to make sense because no one would be looking, and (laughs) also the agents who are with Men in Black, did they all put their sunglasses on instinctually or did some of them get wiped? Folks, I have an answer. According to the Men in Black wiki, he is the same character. His name is is Newton. Uh, And as in like Sir Isaac. And he is a Mm -hmm. recurring minor character in the Men in Black films. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Huh. I, for my entire life, or at least for 25 years, I have fully thought he was dead when he was, like, gooped up on the ceiling. Because you never rewatched two. No. And you know what? I'm still probably not going to. (laughs) Here's the rest of my point about the smoking little runner. Sure. It feels like at the end, I mean, we close on that nice, like, you won't remember little bookend, right? It feels like when they, okay, then it should be like, you were in a coma for 30 years and you don't smoke anymore. You're welcome. Mm. We've cured you of your smoking addiction. That would be but awesome. But it just has no payoff whatsoever in this book. Instead. Do you think 1997 was like, like 1996 was the last year you could have a character who smoked in a movie for no reason at all. And by 1997, they were like, nah, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Like, by, he was writing it, and he was like, yeah, smoking's cool. And by the time the movie came out, they were like, no, it's not. Yeah, I'm trying to think now like, did that about, happen? like, like protagonists smoking in movies after 97. Like, unless it's, like, a plot point or, 
it's the past. Right. But especially for like a big like summer blockbuster like aimed well, I mean it, it kind of reminds me of like, you know, in Ghostbusters 1, they're constantly smoking. Ghostbusters 2, they're not. I'm glad they all quit, I guess. But like, look, Dan Aykroyd climb like lifting himself out of the hood of that car with a cigarette dangling out of his mouth is the hottest he's ever looked. It's the hottest almost any man. It's like a top 10 hot look of the right. world. Oh. Of history. And that's why he was people's sexiest man alive that year. It's true. Good, correct. Yeah. Is that true? <laughs> no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Although it, it does it does feel like in the in the montage in Ghostbusters where they're, you know, like cleaning up the town, uh, and all the magazine covers are like are like popping into frame, one of them should have been people's sexiest man alive and it's race dance. He's really hot in that movie. He, I mean, ghosts think so, too. Facts. He's the hot one. Every group has, like, a smart one, a funny one, uh, you know, and he's the hot one. It, there we go. It's, it's on the record. Hannah Blackman. Yeah. You are Orion the cat. Oh, meow. You have a pretty good life living with Laurel, now L, until in some way that none of us know... She is murdered by Jay. Terrible. You are now a street cat, having a rough time, just sort of walking around. You look through the display window of a bookshop, and they have a scrolling ebook of Men in Black, the novelization by Steve Perry. Would you Mm -hmm. sit your little cat eyes outside that window and let that whole novel scroll by, knowing what you know? On the one hand, I don't have anything better to do. Then it would remind me of better times when I was being cared for by an alien prince who gave me jewelry and took photographs with me and snuggled me. Mm. Pretty good. Um, and then maybe I would get to be on the news as like, local cat reads book. Wow. <laughs> and maybe somebody would adopt me and take care of me again because I'm a house cat, actually. Um, yeah, no, this thing's pretty good. It's fun. It has stuff in it that's different and exciting, and I like spending time with the curb Edgar. <laughs> He's fun. The things that are not in the movie are, as we've discussed, impossible to recreate, and I appreciate that, to a certain extent, that Steve Perry was like, I- I'm not going to try. I know better. To an extent. Sometimes he tries and it fails or whatever. Um, yeah, fine book. Fine book. Fine book. Fine book. I- I'm so glad to have had this conversation and learned about Linda <laughs> criminal whatever is happening <laughs> whatever happened with her and that fbi guy and that boyfriend who crashed my computer so hard <laughs> amazing amazing so glad to have had that so at the end of the day this book was so worth it <laughs> ethan warren you i had something and think about it you Ethan Warren, you are the lady that got stood up by Kay in 1960-whatever. And you never found somebody you loved quite as much. So you've been living a really good single life. You're gardening. You're joining the local book club. And one of the books that your book club (laughs) brings to you is Men in Black by Steve Perry, based on the screen story and screenplay by Ed Solomon. You read it. Are you going to give a positive review to your book club? 
Well, I read it and I start putting two and two together <laughs> about this guy who abandoned me all those years ago. So I'm delighted. And I think this is a great book because um, <laughs> it's offering me a lot of closure. Um, I think this book works really great in the way that I used it, which was as a like week-long warm-up to getting to rewatch this movie. And I would get to go through and be like, oh, yeah, that is in the movie. And oh, that part isn't. And it's, the movie's better for not having that part in it. Um, and then at the end of this reading this book, I got to rewatch the movie. So that made me happy. Um, yeah, it's a crazy book. I feel like novelizations kind of are either like normal or crazy. And this one is crazy. <laughs> and so that's my novelization uh, review of Men in Black. Read it. It's crazy. <laughs> Patrick Willems. Your life was a vacuous pit of despair and sadness until you started getting laid at the hands of one Anthony Pelicano. (laughs) (laughs) Your beloved, who pulled you from the the pits of, of absolute dismay, has gotten into some hot water with the FBI, so you think you might throw it around a little bit with an FBI agent. It's going great. You get the files you think you need. You bring them home to Anthony. Unfortunately, you got the wrong disc. It's the text of Men in Black by Steve Perry. He's a great, considerate lover. He wants to read it with you. Do you think it would strengthen your relationship? This is a hell of a hypothetical you're presenting me with. Um, <laughs> what we do here. This is, this is, this is me and uh, Anthony Pelicano. Yeah, you're gonna read the book together. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I'm gonna say uh, yes. I'm gonna say. I, I mean, like, I will say. I'm gonna assume that Anthony has already seen the movie because it's a very popular movie that we all know and love. Uh, He's got his ear to the the pop culture ground. Exactly, but it's like a fun way to basically revisit the movie in your mind with like a few little added details. Uh, some are ones where you're like, maybe it was better without that information. And sometimes it's like, ooh, that's a fun bit of backstory. But yeah, I think it's a a very solid novelization. And look, Anthony seems like he has a really uh, stressful life with a lot going on, <laughs> and this seems like a good distraction. Ethan, do you do you have one, or should I do it? Oh my God, I, this is my first time when I needed to do this and nobody prepared me. You don't have okay. to. We don't think of it first no. if that's not evident. No, no, no. Yeah, this is an um, off the dome hypothetical. I, I can do one. I can do one. This is a lot of pressure, but I can make it work. Um, okay, so Hannah Blackman. Andrew. Wait, did, Andrew. Hannah Andrew, went. Andrew Overby. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Hannah went. I'm so fucking thrown off. I'm so sorry. You don't Hannah have Blackman, to do this. Hannah Blackman. <laughs> if you were asking Patrick <laughs> Willems not Hannah. to ask, no, 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 Hannah Blackman. Oh, if I you see. were asking Patrick Willems to ask Andrew Overby, no. <laughs> okay, Andrew Overby. Yes. Listen up, man. I got a question for you. It's it's a serious question. I'm prepared. If you were a giant bug named Curb who thought mm-hmm. life was incredibly unfair mm. and you needed to fly home to your planet to feed dead bodies to your millions of children and you were worried you were going to have a severe case of the munchies and you needed to grab one text to bring with you on the spaceship to stave off the munchies, would you think that the novelization of Men in Black was an appropriate choice? I think so. Here's my thing for today. 
my opinion of novelizations has absolute value bars around it. Which is to say, that as long as there is motion in some direction, I usually like it. When a book <laughs> makes really bad choices that go away from the source material, I think that's interesting. When it makes really good choices that elevate the source material, I think that's great as well. As long as we are distancing ourselves from zero, that being the carbon copy novelization that tries very little. This is an interesting mix of both. It has things that make the world that was already established richer. It also has things that seem to contradict the spirit of the characters. One I really like just unironically. The other one I find academically interesting. Great book. Would recommend. Will recommend. For sure. Patrick Willems. Yes. What do you do? Where do you do it? And why? Um, uh, I, I make uh, long video essays about movies that you can watch on uh, YouTube and Nebula. And I do it because, uh, as Speed Racer once said, it's the only thing I know how to do and I gotta do something. Look, I, I, have, I have told Patrick this to his face before, but I'm just going to say it again. Watching Patrick videos has made me a better writer. And I just, I love to, to listen to your videos and the way your mind works and the way that you put it into words has been a huge influence on me. And so I highly recommend people check them out. That is so nice. I, I, <laughs> so listeners true. can't see this, but I'm, I'm really blushing right now. That was, that was really, th- thank you so much. Patrick. What video would you recommend for people who are not familiar with your work to check out your whole deal? Uh, you know what? I, that's, that's a good question. Um, I would say the, the video I think I am proudest of that I've made in a long time is uh, this spring, uh, I went to India and, uh, and made a video about Bollywood where I, you know, I got into Bollywood, learned about it. You know, we shot a video in India um, yes, there is a dance sequence. Uh, I, th- I think it's one of the better things I've made. Uh, I'm really happy with how it turned out. And, um, and if you know nothing about Indian cinema, then you're kind of like me before I made that video. And I think that's a good place to jump in. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Patrick. My pleasure. Always a pleasure. Of course. This is always so much fun. To our listeners, please do remember to rate our podcast, review it, subscribe to it. Also remember, new thing, that if you leave a five-star review on iTunes or Apple in which you, in the style of our reviews, set up a situation which is a novelization-style thing of your favorite movie. I'm still working on the patter here. Uh, Then we'll try to guess what movie it is. Does that make sense? The... You are blah, blah, blah. Do that for your favorite movie. We'll try to guess what it is. And as usual. Have we gotten any of those yet? Nope. 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 Awesome. Have we put out any of the episodes where I've said it? No. I don't know. (laughs) Leave leave a five-star review. Do it. That's way cleaner than what I said. Follow us on social media. Yeah, follow us on on the the Twitter app, Instagram. We're on Blue Sky now. Are we? Yeah, thanks to Ethan. It happened. Oh, cool. Uh, Is welcome. people using that? No, nothing's happening there. Not really. I posted once. People post the same things they already posted on Twitter, so I see the same post twice ten minutes later. Why would I do that? I'll just live on the cursed hellscape of Twitter.
Yeah. Doing my own thing, not engaging with anything, forcing people to follow along while I watch TV shows that are 10 years old. You on season two of The Americans yet? No. All right, we'll talk. (laughs) Yeah, let's. And as usual, I'm going to close the episode by reading a passage from a classic piece of literature. Please do tweet at AuthorizedPod if you think that you recognize what this is from. Hey, Jay, what's on the docket for today? By the way, I'm L, your partner. Oh, not much. There just seems to have been a time quake. Good night. I don't know if you all noticed this, but in Men in Black, the characters who work for the Men in Black are referred to by a letter. So in the spirit of that, it's thin. It's a thin connection. Let's go. In the spirit of that, I'd like to ask you, Ethan, Hannah, and Patrick, what letter does this slide evoke? What alphabetical letter... Does this slide evoke? Now, the way this will work, and this first one is just a, 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 an example. It, it will not be counted in... Wait, wait, is this like a Rorschach test? Maybe. It's, it's more contextual. So what I'll do is I'll... On each slide, you can potentially earn up to four points. Because I will continually reveal to you images that will evoke, I hope, a letter. And if you guess it after the first image, you get the full four. But if you need it all four, you only get one. Does that make sense? We'll find out. Sure. Great. So there's only two images on this first slide, but let me show you the idea here. What letter does this slide evoke? This is the easiest one. (laughs) Anybody have it? D. D. Perfect. So what are we looking at here? Sweet D from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Perfect. So in this case, I, the other thing was someone drinking Sunny Delicious, and the letter was D. I call it Sunny Delicious. <laughs> what is this and what does it all spell mean? Should I be keeping track of the letters of these slides? I would say keep track of the letters that have been correct, not including this one, which was an example, but don't get too hung up on that yet. Okay. Up first, what letter? Does this slide evoke? Anyone need a second picture? I mean, is this P for Paddington or B for Bear? Ian is not correct. What letter does this slide evoke? Is that Kiefer in Designated Survivor? (laughs) You have to kind of take them all in. What letter does this slide evoke? Oh, Hannah. Hannah Blackman. I? It is not I. Okay. What's your reasoning there? Um, I don't know. I was like, glasses, cat's eye glasses, I look at Paddington's Ooh, beautiful eyes. What if I were to show you this last one? <laughs> Who is that? Anyone? Is that young Brian Cox? 
It is not. (laughs) Is that the actor who plays Q on Star Trek? (laughs) That is, of course, John Delancey who plays Q and the letter is Q. Good job, Hannah. What the fuck? How are the rest of these Qs? Well, this is of course uh, this is of course Ben Wishaw who plays Q. Fuck you. This is of course Kiefer Sutherland in Designated Survivor with Maggie Q, <laughs> and of course Jim Watkins who essentially is Q, anon. <laughs> you, you know, I I know it's early in the game, but I, but I'm just gonna say bad game. I hate <laughs> Not this. A, I, yeah, I, I don't I like this. I fucking hate this already. I'm willing to see level... where this goes. Of your clues in this? Whatever this word spells, it starts with Q. <laughs> it might be an anagram, even. It might be an anagram. So, so just soft focus looking at these. What do all of these sort of evoke? All right, up next. <laughs> Not the letter Q. <laughs> what alphabetical letter does this slide evoke? I've made too many games. My brain is addled. <laughs> <laughs> There's just also, like, no uh, way. So I don't know I, who two of these people are. I don't have an answer here, but how is this going to work in an audio medium? <laughs> this is the problem with every game, Patrick. With every game. So what are we looking at here? For well, the, no, I the listeners? Okay. Oh. Andrew, it, shut up for uh, a second. Patrick, Ethan, this is now a group <laughs> game, and we just have to talk it out together. And we will all win. <laughs> okay, so we have 4chan. We have... That's big boy, right? I don't... Mm-hmm. Okay, we have... The, we have... The fonts. We have the fonts. But also, is it a thing where it's like, oh, they're in a show where someone else has a letter? Yeah, like, who's, it could be. Who's, who is like, she? Big, who's, who's the girl? Did I miss that? I, I have know. no idea. I don't think the... I don't think the Maggie Q thing happens again. I don't think Better I do that not. again. Okay. Bitch. I yeah, don't know that girl. She looks a little familiar to me, but not really. Wow. Is she on a TV it's, show that I don't watch? I guess so. It's rare that it's apparent it's going to be such a disaster from <laughs> early on. What if I were to direct you towards the Fonz's key phrases that recur throughout the a, show? A, a, a. It's of course A. What the fuck? Wait, wait. How is 4chan is... A? Because that's that's an that's an anime person there in the anime section of Four Chan. And it, wait, a is Big Boys that he's in a group with Andre? No, it's that he's from the A. And who's the woman? Uh, the character A from Pretty Little Liars. Well, that, that would have been a giveaway <laughs> if you knew it, right? So this is one of those games where if anyone literally gets one point. That's like a win for all of us. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, people are getting points, right? Somebody said A. Somebody said the last At one. At this point, I we're said, all in I it said together. A. I've decided right. that. I want sa- to yeah. sacrifice the point because it's a group game and we're trying to survive. Also, Incredible. Andrew, you literally said, what is the Fonz's catchphrase? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I make a lot of these games, and I really get out of touch with what's normal or doable. This could have been a species-level, is-this-person-an-alien-or-not type game. And instead, <laughs> you chose to do this. Yeah, just try can, to break the mold. Up next. Yeah, can I pitch a different game? <laughs> yeah, go for it. 
Uh, so in all the Men in Black movies, or at least the first two, they do the gag where there's the screen showing, like, current aliens on Earth, and there's, like, various, like, celebrities and stuff like that. Yeah, I thought of this. And you decided to do this instead. Well, would would the game be you have to guess who I think is an alien? No, it would be who, like, uh, naming celebrities, and, and I, we have to guess if, if, me, if they are canonically an alien or not in Men in Black. There's, there's rem- four movies, and so you have a lot to pull from. Oh, wow. Good thoughts. Well, more novelizations <laughs> to cover. Good thing we have this game for now. Up next, what alphabetical letter does this slide evoke? <laughs> I feel like this one's doable. R. Patrick Willems, you are correct. This evokes R. Okay. These, this is uh, the album <laughs> R by R. Kelly, the album Rated R by Queens of the Stone Age, the album Rated R by Rihanna, and the character R from James Bond. See, this makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> you really screwed us by starting with that Paddington Bear thing. <laughs> no, I'm so unsure. I thought we had some Wishaw heads. All right, up next... Fuck what? you with that. Come left. on. He has a face. He has a human face you could have used. <laughs> Up next, what alphabetical letter does this slide evoke? You? It's you. Hey, look, you guys are getting them. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> what are we looking at here? A sheep. They, a lady sheep. That's a you. The girl from uh-huh. the TV show You. Uh-huh. A, a shot from the film Age of Ultron, which starts with you. <laughs> and that was a stretch, yeah. And is in the MCU. That's great. That's what I was thinking, yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. And then Aretha Franklin had a single called you. Up next, what <gasps> alphabetical letter does this slide evoke? Is that Hannah and Crimson Peak? Oh, I, because he's an eye doctor. <laughs> The letter is, of course, I. We're looking at Charlie Hunnam as an eye doctor from Crimson Peak. The Bon Iver album, I, I. I have the words T.J. Eckelberg <laughs> from uh, The Great Gatsby. Uh, the eyes of T.J. Eckelberg. And then, of course, uh, the, 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 that famous painting of Adam, who is the first person. How's that? You guys like that? Boo. <laughs> no. Yeah, I don't like it. Boo. I'm with Ethan. Boo. You couldn't even pull like a screenshot from Great Gatsby with the the eyes, or the cover of the book. You gotta understand in my in my mind because I'm coming up with this stuff. I sometimes get confused and think that things would be too easy when they wouldn't. <laughs> it's okay. If That's the not the problem here. <laughs> and, and you've done this in how many episodes? Uh, there's like sixty games. Yeah, a lot. Wait, was Up there next. a game in the Revenge of the Sith episode? There wasn't. That was, okay. was, that was back in the era when they sometimes had games, only when I had good ideas. And now I gotcha. do them, even if I don't. <laughs> yeah. Up next, what alphabetical, what, what alphabetical letter does this slide evoke? I mean, there's a, a. Looney Tunes thing happening down there. <laughs> Who said what? Somebody said a. something? It's not A, but N. great guess. It's N, Ethan. Good work. Because we are, of course, looking at an N64 game, the Pokemon character N, and the end from Looney Tunes. Uh. Oh, my God. (laughs) Look, you say they're bad, but you guys are killing it. N from Pokemon? Apparently. I'm so out of touch with Pokemon post, like, 2000. Mm -hmm. I just want to go on the record. 
the argument that the game is bad that Patrick put forward is continuing to dissolve as you guys succeed. Just because we figured out how it works doesn't mean it's good. Doesn't mean we <laughs> like it or are having fun. Yeah. Like, I, I, bet Quiz, I, I bet Quest 64 isn't a good game, but you can play it. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Up next. What? Alphabetical letter does this slide evoke? L. It's L! I thought I thought you were going to end on the one that ended on the end, but then there was another. <laughs> yeah, and it's not over yet, although this phase is over. There's one more challenge to be had, which is, Hannah, you've been recording the, the letters that were written down? Yeah. <laughs> and what are they? Q-A-R-U-I-N-L. Fantastic. Using those seven letters, what... 10-letter word from Men in Black can you create? Um. Archillion. <laughs> Patrick, it is Archillion. Yay. Wow. Oh, so you're doubling wow. up some of those letters, huh? Yeah, there were seven letters for a 10-letter word. Okay. Look, we love those Archillion battlecruisers. So it do seems we? like... It seems like in general, just do the idea I think is bad just do that one <laughs> just do something that seems like fun to play <laughs> come on I thought man. that'd be fun I don't to know. play well, well so I'm you know I've only this is my third episode but um Andrew what's it like when because you do this at the top of the episode we record this part first you can cut yeah. that out of the edit if you want but what's it like to have guests show up and immediately get mad at you 